Okay, welcome to McLuhan on Maui, seminar or colloquium number three, being recorded on March 14th, 2011. And at the moment, we hope more will show up. We have uh, Sheila from Nova Scotia. We have uh, 8-Bit from New York City. We have Chad and Angela from Vancouver. And we have Buzz from Beijing, China. Now, Buzz is Buzz Coaston. And Buzz is our guest of honor tonight. He can talk about his relationships to McLuhan or about how he makes his YouTubes. He's a major YouTube artist, I think, just by output. He has had a thousand or more YouTubes, uh, vids, B-I-D-Z, thousand or more vids knocked out of YouTube several times. Right, Buzz? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I hold the record for most YouTubes destroyed by YouTube. <laughs> Due to various factions of other opinions, especially Christian fundamentalists lately. So um, I have here uh, Andrew Crystal. I think he sent you uh, a notice about why we'd like you to talk, Buzz. And uh, one of the things that stands out is his question, um, what are you doing, especially, I guess, in why McLuhan, and why are you doing it? That's sort of (laughs) the beginning point. Okay. Well, I, I don't think I have a good reason for why I'm doing it. I, uh, there's no, um, you know, intellectual thought that goes behind, uh, oh, I should do this. Um, it's more like a hobby. You know, it started out a uh, long time ago. Now, I, ca- I encountered Mc- McLuhan's stuff back in the mid-90s. And... Um, at that time, I could see, you know, his where he was pointing things were going. The internet was just, you know, starting to take off and things like that. So I saw that things were moving towards what uh, we would now call a tactile approach. You know, more audio and video and less text. So um, based on that and my interest, I began to experiment with uh, video, digital video. I think I put my first digital video on the internet somewhere around 98. Nobody could watch it, of course, because there wasn't enough bandwidth to do anything with it. And so, but that was my first, you know, play in that. And then in 2005, I began to, um, you know, you, I ran into YouTube and I thought, oh, well, this could be fun. I started making some videos. And then by 2007, early 07, uh, it occurred to me that Maybe I found some McLuhan audio that I didn't know existed, and I thought it might be fun to make some videos out of them. So that's kind of how the whole thing got started, and and uh, that was my entry into the whole thing. Yeah. Now, someone sent me that YouTube, one of the first one McLuhan number one or something. Remember that the very first one? Right. Shortly after I started the uh, My McLuhan channel. Uh, I got you contacted me, and, right? And that uh, wasn't so because I was looking for it. Uh, someone sent sent me the YouTube. It could have even been Chad. Who knows? Somebody right. sent me that YouTube, and I watched. And I said, "Wow, this is well done. Good imagery, thoughtful." And he actually has the McLuhan audio. So we got in touch, and I found out eventually you were in Hawaii, and we failed to connect because you were when I moved to Hawaii in the summer of 2008, and then you were traveling, and you have never returned to Hawaii. Yeah, I, did, I did return briefly for a few weeks, but 
<clears throat> but yes, uh, when I, I left uh, Hawaii, I had been in Hawaii for about uh, six years when I left uh, for what I thought would be a few months in July of June, July of 07, something like that. Yes, and, it was the year uh, before I got here. Right. Haven't been back, haven't lived there again since then, but, uh, you know, that's a whole other story. Yeah, we we hooked up at the end of September 2008. You were in Florida staying with your relatives. On your way back to Hawaii, intending to stay on the island of Kauai where you'd been through the winter right. months. And you get to right. Kauai. Right, Beg your pardon? Yeah, that was my intent. Yeah, and you get, uh, and all the while, while traveling from Florida to Hawaii, which was about a six-week period, you started uh, using my stuff, and there was lots out there, recordings, and making, you know, one, two, three YouTubes a day, just piling them, piling them on. And by, and by the time you got to Kauai, you had, I don't know, 50, 60 YouTubes uh, featuring me and McClure and a few other things. And then you couldn't make it to the wilderness part, I'll call it, of Kauai Island, one of the Hawaii Islands, uh, because you got there a week or two too late, and it was too stormy, too many waves. So you were stranded, and you didn't want to stay in the little town part of uh, Kauai. So you said, the heck with this, right. I'm going to Asia. Right. Yeah, and uh, that's the that's scenario. I would say that um, what happened, I had come back to the U.S. Uh, for a few months, and I had traveled along the East Coast, and then um, you, we start reconnecting again. We hadn't talked to each other, hadn't done anything for a while. And then uh, I kind of got stuck at my mom's for about a month, and I really had nothing to do. And uh, that's when you and James were uh, just starting the cash flow thing. Yeah. So, that, so it, just, it gave me something to do. <laughs> and uh, so I would uh, do like, you know, every show would be like, I don't know, five, ten videos, depending on what the uh, audio was like. And then uh, so it, actually what happened was I hadn't made that many. Uh, I had made some uh, videos of my travels through uh, Southeast Asia. But uh, after I started doing the cash flow videos, that's when the volume really picked up. And and it just because I've done so many now, and, mo- and a lot of them, I would say half of the videos are related to your stuff, uh, it makes it really easy for me to do. I've picked up a lot of technique and learned a lot of stuff about it. So it was a lot of fun doing it. But, yeah, right, I, now we- I got to Hawaii, and I got stuck. So And I ended up in Asia again. I haven't been back since. Right. And one more interesting story before I go to 8-Bit. Um, when you flew from Kauai to uh, Thailand, were you going to? Bangkok? Right. I was headed to Bangkok. Right. And you got stranded in Tokyo because right. of the riots, uh, occupation of the airport in Bangkok by the citizens, right? Right. Exactly. And, there, and, yeah, there, you, and you, you emailed me that right. fact. And three days later, they had like 15 YouTubes done while sitting in the hotel. There was really nothing to do, you know. I had, uh, it was cold in Japan, and I didn't have any uh, clothing for cold weather. And so I was just basically stuck in this little monk cell in the hotel in Tokyo <laughs> waiting for a plane ride to Bangkok. So I probably cranked out a few videos then. Yeah, now, when, these, when people like Scott Norris and other friends of mine 
started to notice your output. They say, what's this guy on crack? What the heck's going on here? Is the guy just keeps <laughs> pumping the <about?" laughs> And I'm not even sure if 8-Bit might have said that. But 8-Bit, do you recall when you first were looking at YouTube, at uh, Buzz's YouTubes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I was on the YouTube channel myself, and I was commenting on his stuff as soon as he sent it to me because it was pretty 8-Bitty. The graphics and the, the the effects had been put through various filters and the references to uh, stock footage and, and other stuff really reminded me a lot of earlier video art or the video art scene in New York City, you know, early 90s when, um, when I was a, a whippersnapper. And there was a lot of video art going on in where I was in my, in my whereabouts uh, at that time. So when I came upon Buzz's stuff, I was, I was like, oh, this is great. Finally, somebody is bringing this stuff back. I didn't know if it was a derivative of earlier artists, but it definitely uh, it tweaked my Warholian aspect. Also, I just wanted to tell you guys, if, if you don't know um, what, where I'm coming from with this stuff, I was, I was doing visuals for the New York City rave scene, which is completely dead now, but in the early 90s, you know, I spent many a moon um, tripping on psychedelics, uh, projecting visuals from an Amiga computer onto various illegal um, warehouse walls, <laughs> under bridges, and wherever we can do it. So I think, I think the nature of Buzz's videos have that sort of found footage, that, that feel that you, you've walked into a, an environment that you're not supposed to be in, um, and you know, I, 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 that's why I'm very open on the comments. I mean, I think we've had a couple of flame wars when uh, McLuhan was talking about orientalizing at one point, and I brought up, well, what does he mean by that? And then uh, I had Bob, Bob and your people. You came on, and it got all, it got all. Um, but that's what it's about. It's about the contrast, right? So I'm, I've been an avid fan since, and, and Buzz, great work. I like the new stuff on Vimeo. It looks high, high def. You, you definitely see the uh, the positive uh, learning curve there, uh, even though sometimes the basic obscure sort of pixelated stuff is, is what I'm in the mood for, especially on those dark nights when um, you don't want clean images. Yeah, well, I'm, the, the whole uh, Vimeo thing is um, it wasn't trying to improve quality. Evidently, it does, but uh, I still try and make them as dirty as, and pixelated as possible, but uh, they're determined to make them clean. I, I have to send you this. Uh, we just cracked a piece of software called Text Machine, and what it does is it it was way too overpriced, so I got the trial, and then I cracked it, and I'll, I'll send it to you. But what, what we did cool. was it, it, takes te it takes text files, so you could take actual text files, whether it's, you know, Ulysses or, or, your, or the phone book or something you copied and pasted, and it injects them into a the visual um, space in a number of ways. You can manipulate the actual text um, through the, uh, the 3D effects card uh, graph. So it's almost like playing a, a game on your PC, but you're working with text that you're inputting. It's useless for regular people, but for guys like you and, and – right. uh, and art and, and and like you know people that do visuals for uh, for for uh, clubs and events. It's a very useful tool. Might actually come in handy in the future. Um, I'll send that to you. 
Yeah, that'd be cool. I, in fact, some of the people that I follow on YouTube, like a guy named Bob Forehead, he uses that uh, program, I think. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know which one he uses, but he uses a lot of text in his videos, and they're floating around and doing weird things. So sounds like what he's using. Yeah, now, yeah, you know. uh, uh, just a side thing, 8-Bit, I don't know how long 8-Bit can stay here. I hope he can stay a long time. But while we have you here, he has a very interesting personal story. Uh, Ted Carpenter married... Adelaide Demoniel, and Demoniel is the uh, art family that came out of Houston in the 60s that made a lot of artists famous from Warhol to all the minimalists and conceptualists and a whole range of people because their museum, and, and uh, Dominique Demoniel, she uh, was the heiress of the Schlumberger fortune, and so she had a lot of money, was in the art world, and a lot of the artists that kids study in the art school today were picked by Dominique's gang, Dominique and her husband, Jean, and a young associate employee named Fred Hughes, who became the manager of Andy Warhol. Now, all these, the Demoniel family and, uh, and their kids, one of them was Adelaide. Ted Carpenter married Adelaide. And Ted Carpenter, therefore, was involved with the art establishment that Marshall always critiqued and thought that... Uh, misused artists. So what's interesting that Ted Carpenter um, ended up with the DIA Foundation. You know what the DIA Foundation is, uh, 8-Bit. Yep. Uh, DIA. Major art organization has a big, uh, big operation outside of New York City as well as um, uh, in, down in the Soho region on 23rd Street. So um, the thing about Ted Carpenter is that he he was married to a woman whose sister, Philippa, I think her name is, was the main organizer of the art world in the 70s on behalf of her mother, and she had a religious streak, a Sufi interest. Now, 8-Bit himself, your parents were a member of the religion that the Demoniel uh, couple, uh, Henrik, I think it is, is it Heinrich? Heinrich? Yeah, Heinrich, yeah. Heinrich and Philippa, is that her name, Philippe? Philippa. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a bit about, this is nothing, not casting aspersion on Ted Carpenter or anything, but it's a very interesting aspect of the interests, the religious interests of some of the Demoniels and how they influenced the art world and what happened. And 8-Bit was in the middle of it as a young boy. So tell us a bit about that story. Sure. Well, it's actually something I'm working on making into a cohesive narrative, but I'll give you the... Uh, the 10 words or less in three minutes or less, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and this is a, a bit, the point is we're talking about the art establishment, right? This is the art right. establishment. So Dia Foundation basically dictated when I was a boy in the early eighties, what art was, what modern art was with, uh, uh, pushing various artists to the forefront in the New York scene. And at that time I was very young. Um, uh, I'm what they call Gen X, so to anybody out there who's trying to frame me, I was probably four or five. And my father <clears throat> was a translator to a uh, Sufi sheikh that had this uh, order of, uh, uh, it was called the Jedi Order, and basically they preached love and compassion, and it was 
pseudo-cultish, um, according to my atheist mother, who hated it. So there was a lot of contrast. Here's my dad taking me to these events, and then my mother saying, don't believe what you hear. So the events consisted of lots of upper elite art snobs that had converted to this order um, in the vein of the Maharish Mahesh uh, uh, conversions of the early 70s. A lot of them seemed like they were leftovers or never, or just weren't around for that. Um, but mostly uh, Germanic origin mixed with, you know, your, your, your um, Anglo base of New Yorkers and the occasional Jew here and there, but very, very few actual Muslims. You, you, didn't, you didn't encounter any of that, considering that Sufism is esoteric Islam, right? Yeah. So, so, so that's something that, you know, I have to get out of the way at, at, at the beginning, is what my experience of this Sufism thing was extremely American, extremely sort of art snobby, and the rituals that, that the sheikh were, were, was teaching Feria, who later be, inherits the order, by the way, and I'll get there um, soon, uh, were completely uh, translated to English. Prayers were translated to English. You were chanting in English. The Arabic had been dumped. Um, there was no reading from a book. People were given song sheets that, you know, that were translated by professional uh, Arabic translators and then forgotten about the Arabic. So it was an interesting time. And architecturally, this, this facility was in Soho, at the, uh, it, which wasn't the best neighborhood at the time. Uh, but if you could transplant yourself to 1982, 1983, New York City, Soho, it was, there was a lot of art everywhere. There was a lot of graffiti. Keith Haring was around the corner. Warhol was still pumping out prints. Uh, Basquiat was wandering around. And um, there were a lot of musicians. Lou Reed was, was I think, still on the, on the last legs of the Velvet Underground. Uh, so, so there was this element around this, and you would always see these people, these, these uh, pop superstars. And BAI was, was the place where I would spend many. Uh, WBAI Pacific Radio is where the Sheikh would be brought to coerce with interfaith um, other, other religions that would have questions about Sufism and whatnot. Now, later on, he passes away. Um, a lot of the Sufis in the order sort of go on their own way. And uh, the, the power shifts from this, I guess you would call this immigrant Turkish sheikh, who was the leader of the order, who my father was translating for everybody from, to slowly to the Dia Foundation's um, sort of heiress, which would be... Uh, what her name was before she became Faria, which was uh, Bob, I, what was her name again? Philippe? So, Philippe, Philippe, yeah. So, Philippa? So, Philippa becomes Feria and inherits the order through her uh, husband, but there's a lot of drama that goes on. Most of the Sufis leave because of the drama, and the drama concerns money. These people are loaded, um, and uh, and there's there's some sort of manipulation going on that the uh the trust doesn't um sort of um want to happen meaning that they they don't want money sort of put towards the sufi bookstore that 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 starts or towards these spring valley retreat that forms and so there's all these activities that sort of come out of feria's um inheriting of the order and she tries to she tries to do some things to it. All good. At that point, you know, um, 
uh, I drop off, as does my my dad, because I think what happened was once that once that first shake sort of uh, passes away, a lot of people leave because they're upset with the with the fact that people that they were studying with became the head of the order. Now that's the short and long of it, but it does go on after that. There is more drama, and this the, this order still continues to this day. It's a lot smaller, and the, it, it's mainly uh, women. Uh, at this point, and it serves as a model for, you know, sort of what America can do to uh, Islam or esoteric Islam. It's actually fantastic, and I recommend everybody check it out. There's nothing particularly Charlie, Charlie Manson or Maharishi about it, meaning that it, it's, it's not... It's not they're not asking for money because they have money, right? Yeah. <laughs> what is the name of their website? What's the uh, organization? I don't, I don't I don't know the website. I think they they don't have much of a web presence, but that's kind of the point. And that that's just the slither of my childhood. That was just one thing I was doing on the weekend uh when my dad was picking me up and taking me to these there's the other parts to it. So I don't want to over exaggerate right. the importance of that of that on me. That was just something I was dealing with, and you know, it was more the effect that it left on me was the hypocrisy of the different, uh, uh, <laughs> I guess you would call them eccentric personalities, artists, and being exposed to all these artists and seeing all of these bullshit um, rituals <laughs> sort of allowed allowed me to uh, question the rest of the rituals of the more monotheistic. Uh, uh, religions. To okay. Where event, yeah, that's it. To the point, finish the sentence. To the point. To the point where later on in adolescence, I go through my satanic period, and then I go through my Carlos Castaneda period, and then I go through my alien Anunnaki Nephilim period, <laughs> and then out of college, and then finally I meet Bob, and I enter my android meme period, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask. Was there any talk of McLuhan as a young man? Did you ever hear that word around them? in the church or in the art circles that you were brushing up against way back then? I was too young to be paying attention to the, to the cues, uh, to the tropes of, of who was talking about what, but yeah. I'm sure they were. Everybody was, was, uh, talking about something. Uh, there was, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was like, um, if I could transport you there, it was constant conversation about, the effects of media and the effects of and encountering those effects with these rituals. Oh, okay. So here's here's the thing. If you Google Vanity Fair, the mid '90s, you will find an article on on Dia and um, DIA, and it's about the battle between the siblings of Adelaide. I mean, of um, of uh, Dominique and John. Okay, John dies in the '70s. Dominique uh, carries on. But you've got Heinrich, I think that's his name, and Philip are running the this major art foundation. And a lot of the people, this is a point, you have to realize, every great artist you've heard, Donald Judd, I think the, those sculptors, uh, any of these people come out of uh, Lamont Young. Lamont Young was part of this. Uh, Gerd Stern was telling me, our guest last week, um, was telling me about uh, uh, the funding of Lamont Young's music. So here you have this funding of uh, the new art, and that leads to the creation, commercial creation of Soho. This family has a fight going on between the siblings and others about control of the Dia Foundation. And Heinrich and Philippa lose control. Now, do you remember that? Did you ever hear that? Eight that bit. happens around. That happens around that. 
80, 89, yes. 90, yeah. I think so, because this article is a few years later, and it's, it's giving a whole history. And I think there was a, a waffling period there, and I think Heinrich and Philip are back in some kind of authority, though I'm not sure. Have you heard anything lately on that? Heinrich has completely dropped out. Heidarbe was his name. He's no longer Heidarbe now. He's Heinrich again. Um, yeah. You know, he's, he's doing his – he's an art dealer. He's one of the top art dealers in the world. Um, he'll make or break any artist, um, and uh, and he's doing fine. He's not related with the uh, with the order anymore. It's basically Faria's uh, project and uh, and her husband. Uh, she got remarried, and um, they uh, yeah the outfit is still there. It's you know it's it's not in Soho, but they changed the location because the Soho location was actually an old firehouse. It was huge. It was four floors high. So I think that um, along with the, with the fall of the original order came the relocating of it and also the spreading of it out. Now there's another one in, in Oregon and California. They have, a, they have a, a branch in Mexico even and probably have a branch in Hawaii. So <clears throat> it spread like the uh, Android meme. Right. Like Agent Smith. It's Agent Smith. <laughs> right, from the Matrix. So, so Philippa or Fedia, I'm not sure how you say the name. What's the name? Fedia? Philippa or Fedia. Yeah. yeah, Fedia. Is she still, as far as you know, involved with the DIA Foundation? I think she's on the board of trustees, but she has no real role. I think she's just, uh, she's just an advisor on the board. Um, but they, they did... They did uh, try to oust her. Now, I did come, I do meet people that work with them, and the general word on the street is if, if you work with them, you try to get as much as you can um, because they're loaded. And I think that has worked against her. I think that now she's sort of trying to hang on to what she has because over the years, a lot of people have come for assistance, offering services to her or the order or, you know, whatever, and, and really ripped them off. I mean, I found myself um, actually in a car with a guy that had told me that he was archiving all of their um, zikrs, which is which is one of the rituals that they do, and he was charging them three thousand dollars per hour, <laughs> and he didn't know who, and he didn't know who I was. This was completely synchronicity, and I'm I'm saying, so you're working for the Jedi Order and charging them three thousand an hour to archive. Um, to archive these these rituals and he's like yeah those you know those those cultish brainwashed bastards and so i think the the word on the street is she's trying to hold on now because they've been so ripped off by countless outsourcers and and who knows what else right um you know okay so this this is an interesting sidebar because marshall writes marshall McLuhan writes in uh, understanding media about how artists made frivolous by the institutions the museums the uh, art foundations and society in general, and the real early warning system of the arts is ignored. So that was McLuhan's aesthetic position. And what's ironic is Ted, his partner, who helped write Understanding Media, according to Ted Carpenter. Parts of it were written by him. That's why Ted Carpenter says the style is uneven, because it's more than that. And uh, I guess we'll someday see Ted Carpenter's papers to prove that. But Ted Carpenter ends up in the art content world with the establishment. And then when you can look at Don Thiel's book, um, The Virtual Marshall McLuhan, where there's an appendix at the end, uh, the history of uh, Ted Carpenter's relationship with McLuhan, 
Ted Carpenter talks about in the 70s, he introduced a lot of major New York artists to McLuhan. And McLuhan, of course, had no respect for them. And it would be interesting to actually get access to Ted to be able to talk about Marshall's interpretation of the art figures. So I've discussed with Ted Carpenter different things over the years, not lately. But for some reason, when I mentioned that Andy Warhol, when Marshall met Andy Warhol, he, he saw him in the corner of Ted Carpenter's home. He recognized him. He says, oh, he, he, he says something like, who's that Rube? And uh, Carpenter says, that's, uh, that's uh, no, who's that guy? And Carpenter says, oh, that's Andy Warhol. And Marshall says, oh, that Rube, and puts him down. So I bring this up to Ted, because he had written in his book. Uh, it's in the Theo book later, but I bring it up before, because I heard about it. And he says, no, no, and he defends Andy Warhol. He says, I think Andy Warhol's a great artist. And as I'm listening to Ted Carpenter talk about how great Warhol is, I'm thinking of that Dia, who is, uh, Ted is related to, Dia, through um, Fred Hughes, was the one who created a uh, big factor in managing and creating the Warhol mythology. Now, Warhol might have been famous anyways with his art, but it's very interesting. This is a side dialectic between Marshall and Ted that, Apit gives us an interesting inside view of some of the thinking that was going on around the people who ran the institution in the 70s and 80s. So that's why I bring this in. It's, an, it's something to look into if we ever get access to Ted Carpenter to discuss what art is, you know, and what McClellan meant by art. Now, back to art in general. What is it, Buzz? Art is, what, art is whatever you can get away with. Now, note, that is not being said by McLuhan. That is quoted in the medium as a massage. And when McLuhan's <laughs> quoting it, it means a figure for a ground. And traditional Gutenberg arts were forced to be that way by the 60s. Art is anything you can get away with. And Jean Baudrillard writes about Warhol very intelligently. Warhol bypassed that and just used the new non-art, the film and the magazine environments, to, get, to be well, come with you know, Warhol... I mean, Warhol, what Warhol did was he used his knowledge of advertising to create Warhol. You know, yes. his art isn't on the canvas. His art is being Warhol. Yes. And he was the first to figure out either he stumbled on it accidentally, he just wanted to make films, and he had the factory, He's and then an it became a... Exec. He what? was an advertising exec. He was an advertising exec. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was creating a brand called Andy Warhol. Well, that's right, but the thing is that he was the top graphic designer, voted the top guy many times in the 50s, and then he felt lonely. He was the top of an invisible art, you know, advertising, and he wanted to start meeting wealthy people or interesting people, so he pretended he was an artist, and, and he put a painting of uh, Marilyn Monroe in L.A., and that was on show in L.A. the week that Marilyn Monroe uh, killed herself if she was murdered, if she wasn't murdered. So, yes, Warhol wanted to become social currency, and he was successful. And so, well, it, go ahead. Well, I, the thing that amazes me about Warhol is that he preempts this whole intellectual property icon copyright bullshit and just like immediately begins like putting Campbell soup cans on canvases. And, and Campbell is, doesn't, you know, hit him up for trademark infringement or copyright abuse, and he become he sells lots and lots of Campbell soup cans, you know, that he doesn't even paint. He has people in a warehouse putting them together. He's brilliant, but not, right. you know, not as an artist, but as a clever manipulator of public psyche. Not a skillful craftsman artist, though. When he did his painting in the '70s, it might be considered the. Uh, 
skillful, but the point is he worked with the Industrial Environment's art form, which is what McLuhan said about him. And what Marshall writes about, right. is very, about him is very interesting because Warhol was influenced by uh, McLuhan. His famous phrase, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, that's McLuhan inspired. It says on the Warhol Foundation uh, website. So, yeah. so you have McLuhan in the early 50s taking advertising, he's sticking in a book, and no one had done that before. This is in The Mechanical Bride. And he, behind the scenes, got in trouble. The advertisers never witnessed this before. They didn't want to be scrutinized, and so they protested. And anybody got any other information on that? Uh, I wasn't aware of that. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that Mac got in trouble for putting together The Mechanical Bride. That's a new one on me. But it yeah. always amazed me that Warhol was able to take all that iconography that advertising had created and then turn around and sell it as art. You know, that, <laughs> it, it, he, to, to me, he's a genius not for the images he created, but for the way he manipulated the system to his own benefit. That's right. Now, he may have been manipulating it to his understandings. But McClellan gives the larger picture that right in the 60s, the old software factories, movies, magazines, and Hollywood, were now becoming art form because they were superseded by the new cliche environment of television, or the last word right. of television. So it turns the old environment art form, and bec- including manufactured products and assembly line project, products like uh, Campbell's, just putting that in the museum was perfect pitch for what was really going on in terms of McClellan's theory of art. Right. Yeah. So, Apec, can you add to that? Well, then, yeah, and then you have guys like Roy Lichtenstein who take the same screen printing formula and enlarge comic book frames and really just take this one element that Warhol uh, used as part of his 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 prints, right? Yeah. So the process the process that was actually being that was happening the the medium that was that was being experimented with was this sort of uh, not not painting, but the sort of reproduction offset printing mimeograph Xerox kind of medium, where it was it, it was very marketing based, um, half tone pixels you would see, and that eventually leads us to uh, to the actual pixels on on a screen. Um, so I, th- I see it as part of a, 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 a holistic sort of art movement that that. That just is because there was so much newspaper and print, and Campbell's soup labels themselves were actually the subject, not the uh, not the not the soup. So the, so the labels are important, right? It's a, if it, if it was a brandless label, if it was like Campbell's soup in a white packaging with black lettering, Warhol wouldn't have used it. It, it, so they say, oh, maybe it, it had to do with the fact that it invoked this Norman Rockwell Americana. No, no, no. It was simply the way it looked. It was simply that it was printed with this offset technique that he was then taking and hacking and offsetting it again four times in different colors. That then Lichtenstein then just took and said, oh, I'm going to do that with comic books and enlarge it. And, you know, these, these guys became uh, millionaires using that. But now, here we are in, in uh, 2011. I know guys that, that, that troll eBay using the same process Warhol did selling their own versions of Warhol's prints. So there's this guy in Long Island, and he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a guido, you know, he's this typical Long Island guy, and he takes these, these canvases and he just throws some Xeroxed photo, photocopied image on it, a very high contrast of, let's say, Roy Rogers. This was actually something I saw. 
because um, one of my buddies who runs the goth radio station, his, his side job was working for this guy who would pay pennies. So he would throw Roy Rogers' images on this canvas and then just throw a bunch of colors on it so it looked like a Warhol print, then go on eBay and sell it as a Warhol-inspired print for $500. And this is how this guy pays his rent. Hmm. And there are, there's, a whole, there's a whole community of people that, take the re, that reproduce the processes of these early innovators who reproduce processes. So it's <laughs> That's great. Very good pattern there. <laughs> that's what I would add to it, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good addition. Because you know, Warhol said he want, he'd rather be a machine. He wants to be a machine. So he took the early potential of Xeroxing, added that to the art of painting, and now the Android meme and those that understand it can ride that very Xeroxing principle and go way beyond what Warhol was doing. But Warhol was... A, uh, an early canary for being a hacker. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, yeah. A, a medium hacker. Yeah. 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 Brilliant, brilliant strategist. You know, maybe a little luck involved, but um, but to me, he was just brilliant in, in in being able to rip off. You know, Campbell had invested millions into creating that icon, and then Andy just, you know, got a bunch of guys to throw it on a canvas and sell it for lots of money. It's just amazing. Right. So now you have, we can see where McLuhan is a hacker. He hacks the advertise, the free stuff. He said you could do, he criticized ads because they were available, but he didn't know the advertising world. They'd been ground. Marshall was making them figure, and they'd never been subject to scrutiny as a figure, and when it did, they went paranoid and legally tried to stop the book. They didn't do that. I don't know the fine outcome of that, but it, you know, it didn't wreck McLuhan, and the book didn't get sold much, and he had a remainder of copies. He got well-reviewed, but that was an issue that Don Seale talks about, the actual uh, problem Marshall got in by doing it. But you see, the advertising guys were just looking around for a law. There must be a law. We've never experienced this before. It's got to be a law. And they probably couldn't come up with one, but they felt well, Buzz, invaded. Buzz is dealing with this same uh, problem with his videos. Yes, he's, he's taking other videos or pieces of, of of branded videos and and colorizing it and adding his own take on it. And YouTube took it down. This is exactly what Marshall was was dealing with. And even if it's on, in your own context and none for the sake of art. Suddenly, you know, post-Warhol copyright laws kick in. You can't just take news footage and rehash it. You just can't take a Nike symbol and stick it on Tiger Woods' mouth, right, <laughs> without mm -hmm. getting in trouble. Yeah. So, as, an artist, as an artist, you're limited, is what I'm saying. Right. It, well, did did Duchamp do, do that? When he put the Mona Lisa, the mustache on the Mona Lisa, is that the first hacking? Well, all art is, is a hack, you know, like all artists really build on what came before them, generally yeah. speaking, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so it's all really a hack, you know. I mean, the, the whole thing, Burroughs had a great comment about artists where he said, you know, uh, all artists are actually rug merchants, you know. You always got to go around and sell your shit all the time, you know. And that, <laughs> and that ultimately is what art comes down to, being a rug merchant. Unless you're just doing it, for the sake of doing it, you know. Then okay, that, that brings up a point, Buzz. Pre-literate art, they didn't have a commercial ground. It's only with the printing press and the nations and cities and that kind of cultural life led to the role or profession of an artist. When you say artist, when you quote, art is anything you get away with, that is multi-leveled, including we're in a post-literate, 
retrieval of Aboriginal, you're able to make much art, or not even art, you're just making, which right. is, is in the realm of people of the Balinese. We just do whatever we can as well as we can. The, you're not doing it in a commercial context, and the Android meme allows you to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, for me, what, it, what it's come down to is just to see the kind of strange reactions that I get to it. Uh, yes. That's the fascinating thing to me, you know, just the, uh, like uh, the thing that the last uh, troll war I had on YouTube uh, was uh, I took a, a, a video made by Eli and a video made by some psychotic woman in a bikini and mashed them together quite by accident. You know, it wasn't like I thought, oh, I'm going to take these two cool videos and put them together. It was purely fucking random. And, uh, and then the woman read this whole thing into the video, like I was threatening to kill her. That was one of the yes. takes she had on the video. I was threatening to kill her. And I'm like, <laughs> holy shit. You know, like all I was doing is taking Eli's goofy video and mixing it with her goofy video. And out of that comes a death threat. And, and somebody then, one of her little trolls or maybe even her, I'm not sure, watched every single video on YouTube and reported each and every one to YouTube. And YouTube took down like I don't know how many and I lost I don't know how many channels. It was crazy. And that was all just done purely at random. <laughs> that, that was to me, that was like, that was worth more than like getting a million dollars for putting up some goofy art. I'm like, oh my God, look at what that did. And all I did was just drag two goofy videos together. Right. It, well, it, that, that was precious to her, right? That was her, that was, so her art, artists are very sensitive individuals, right, Buzz? So, oh, so yeah. They make... They make these. They make these works that that they think are are going to outlive them. I mean, little do they know. You know, some guy takes it and uses it alongside something else later, and it makes it his own. And then they, 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 uh, they up and I, same thing happened to me. I was I was listening to some uh, some electronic music, to a style in the UK known as Dub Garage, and I wrote a comment that this isn't real, this isn't good, this is referential to this. It refers to these two songs from 1989, and they're using the same identical sounds. Everybody attacked me and said, if they're using the same sounds, go make the song over. So I took the challenge, and I actually recreated the song that they liked, but I added, I made it a little better, and I put that up. I put a remix of, of a song, of a style that I had never... I haven't been going to these parties that I don't know about, and then the reaction to that was <laughs> was was similarly, oh my God, I'm I'm trying to destroy their scene, um, right? You know, the poor poor dubstep kids in Leeds, you know, but <laughs> no, they, these are yeah, really a, hey, Bud, uh, these yeah. are really good stories, the kind of stuff that Marshall would look for, people doing stuff and then seeing the effects. And now I saw right. the video, you sent it to me of that Christian woman. She right. she d declared the power of Jesus to snuff you out. She basically wanted to kill you, and she called on all right. her associates. And I didn't get a sense that she was aesthetically upset with what you did. She was upset that you were a demon, that you were the Antichrist, that you weren't Christian. Wasn't that the big factor? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, see, the, the woman is actually you know, mentally ill, uh, because if you, <laughs> she, that, that one video I did generated at least four videos from her. 
the first one, she's ranting and crying, and she's screaming, take down your video, but at the same time, she's showing the video on her video. The video that she wants taken down, <laughs> she's showing on her video, right? And yeah. then she's screaming. She sees this thing where there, I, after she, I, I, it, the, it all came together at random, and there's this one sequence where there's a train going by, and, uh, she, and the train looks like it's, according to her, looks like it's going to go into her, and therefore I'm threatening to kill her. Then she comes on a little later, does another video. She's a little bit more calm, and, that's, and then she's decided that Eli is actually me, and she's watched his videos, and she's describing how creepy and weird they are. And I realized finally that she's not talking about mine, disappointingly. She's talking about Eli's videos are creepy and weird. And then... Uh, and then she comes on later than that night, a little bit more calm. And then the last one is she dresses up in an angel costume and wishes me well and thanks me for helping her come to some new revelation. And, and in the meantime, her trolls are busy scouring my videos and having them taken down. It was just an amazing thing. All this huge shitstorm out of me dragging two videos together. Was I? We all win. You yeah. won. She won. Yeah. We all won. Yeah, that's oh, right. Yeah. It was great because because wisdom is anything you can get away with, or realization or enlightenment <laughs> is anything you can get away with. <laughs> it was, so, so it this, was the strangest. This, Go ahead. Okay, I, I was saying this is a good example of quadrophenia. You're saying she transcended the whole thing uh, in her own mind, and that she got something out of the the conflict. I doubt that she really did, but I think she realized after the the first three ranting, screaming videos that she had, to, and she, you know, she has this Christian goody two shoes image. She had to come back with the angel costume and overdo the whole thing. And I guess that's my theory. I don't know. You know, it's right. hard to think how a mentally ill person thinks, but that's my but theory. What, on but that. what you're just saying, Buzz, this this is the archetype. Caravaggio said it. Da Vinci said it. Michelangelo, John the Baptist. Anybody who sort of gets in a position of expressing himself that conflicts with the taboos and the icons of the tribe will end up sounding like, but my God, I didn't know it would have this effect. That's what Stravinsky probably felt in 1913, you know, with the right yeah. of spring. You know, this is the yeah. – and, and McLuhan himself, he said, I rang the fire alarm and you guys accused me of starting the fire. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, really, it's, uh, but, but, you know, you, so the, at first, like the first time this happened to me was with the uh, sub, sub geniuses, you know, the, the church of sub geniuses, which 8-bit, now this is nice synchronicity happening here, 8-bit was a member a little bit of that in, when you were young, right, 8-bit? How could you not be? How could you? How could you go to university and not be exposed to church of sub genius, right? Right. There was, there was Bob Dobbs everywhere. <laughs> so, okay, so so, but hey, Buzz, I wanted to ask you: did did any of my audio get on the stuff that she was outraged about? No, or was no, it more of your other uh, stuff? This is my uh, the other stuff, you know. This yeah, okay, just right. A couple of random videos. So you weren't part of that whole thing. But the Church of the Subgenius was the first time I encountered that uh, serious Fanaticism. blowback. To right, it was crazy because you know here I am just doing these goofy Bob Dobbs cash flow videos. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, these morons come out of nowhere and, you know, like, they, like <laughs> fundamentalist Christians trying to tell me that I'm working with the wrong Jesus, you know, and, uh, and so upset about it that they start having my videos taken down. 
And uh, yeah. and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? What's with these people? You know, like, don't get, can't they get a joke? Or what, what? Yeah, and the very ideals they they propagate: freedom of expression and being yeah. an artist. Yeah, I, I didn't have a high regard for them before that, but after that, I'm like, oh my god, they really they really are a cult. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they really are a cult. And it was crazy. And they, they, they were the first, that was the first time I lost a channel was through them. The buzz coast, the yeah. first buzz coast and channel went down because of them. And, uh, I was and like, buzz, all you have to do is start up another channel, uh, with a different name. It can't be stopped yet. They put all their energies into temporarily for five days winging you. So you can't have something, right? It's silly. Well, but but see what happened is now the Android meme is getting a little tougher about all this stuff. Um, it's interesting to watch the progression of how YouTube has become more and more like uh, like the image of communist China. So in the early t stages, you could just create another channel, and I did that. I created a Dobbs channel and then a Buzz channel. Then they took down the Dobbs channel. I had to start another one of those. And then, um, but now what happened to me on this last one, I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create like another – I already had like five or six Buzz channels. I'm going to create another dozen Buzz channels. But now YouTube is hip to the fact that I'm using the Buzz name. So then they ask me to certify by sending an SMS to a cell phone. And then after a certain number of SMSs to a cell phone number, they ask for another cell phone number. And then sometimes they want two cell phone numbers. And I'm like, holy shit, these people are crazy. You know? They're this, this is the Android meme. Well, who's that speaking? This is 8-Bit. Yes, go ahead, 8-Bit. Is Buzz a certified YouTube partner, meaning is he... No, I mean, I'm a certified YouTube partner in that I'd like to destroy them and put up as many videos that don't make money as possible. And uh, I would never part, they actually, I had a video that was really hot one time and they wanted to partner with me and I sent them on a response back, fuck you. And, I, <laughs> and that so, was after uh, the subgenius thing. That, I mean, you didn't feel this bad yeah. before the subgenius attack. No, no. But, well, the subgenius thing, you know, I, I learned to go with the roll with the punches. But I realized that if you make creative videos on YouTube, or at least provocative creative videos like I do, you're going to end up with trolls trying to take you down because YouTube <laughs> has this three strikes and you're out rule. So all they have to do is find three videos that are objectionable, and they look at every single one. That's the amazing thing for me. You know, there's somebody out there, Bob, who has looked at every single one of my videos, and some probably more than one person, trying to report them to YouTube to get taken down. So I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, don't, the, I don't have that kind of stamina to go out and hunt for somebody and try and <laughs> get them taken down. It's McClure's information hunting. No one ever thought he meant that. We become information hunters and information gatherers. And right. the, I go back to what um, – well, it's the Agent Smith of the Matrix. You've got these Agent Smiths running around chasing you. You should look at the Matrix right. movies, just some guy putting stuff on YouTube and being harassed by the, the trolls. Right. You get, you get that, Agent? Yeah, the Agent Smithing of uh – well, the tr you need the trolls. I, I, I really, I survive off of the trolls. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just that I have, I have so many videos that have gone down, I get tired of re-uploading them. Yeah, he's got a lot more than you've done, wouldn't you say, 8-Bit? Well, I also try to stick with uh, all original content because I don't want to get into the, uh, 
but, but, but you see what Buzz is doing, his video art is different than what I'm doing in terms of remixes and book promos and whatever personal jazz I'm putting up. But the one story that I, I could relate with him on is I had a John Belushi video. When John Belushi was in The Ruddles, he does this, I don't know if you guys seen The Ruddles. I've seen it. Good movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big Rebel fan. Do you recall when he was uh, talking to himself in the mirror? He was like, you know, oh, I want to I wanna help you, you know, but I need money. <laughs> and then the camera zooms out and he's talking to himself in the mirror. Yes. Well, that, that, I posted that clip and it got around 120,000 views and um, in a very short period of time. So YouTube contacted me and asked me if I wanted to become a YouTube partner, having not looked at the video. Had they looked at the video, they would have said, this kid doesn't have the right to rebroadcast the John Belushi clip. So <laughs> here I am getting an automatic robotic message saying, hey, do you want to start making money off this video? Because the way it works is after 60,000 views, Google uh, and YouTube approach you and ask you if you want to make money with them because you're bringing in cash because you're bringing in uh, users to the website. Now, knowing that I was about to get caught, because at this point, if I accepted the money, it's like accepting a bribe, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like a snail in salt factory, right? <laughs> and basically, I, I put the video down as soon as I got that notification. <laughs> <laughs> you should have let him take it down for you. Right. Yeah, McLuhan hasn't taken today, you know, success under electric conditions always leads to failure. Failures are more success. These contradictions of what the hell you're writing for or performing for in the audience's trolls, I mean, it's crazy. The opening line I mentioned last week, the first essay, in the first explorations, McLuhan takes on the natural inclination of every person desire to express themselves and have everybody else think like them. That, that impulse, Web 2.0, has just made go, uh, what's the word, uh, supernova. Everybody, and they're all their own curator, curator, cultural critic, policeman, supporter, and they're doing all the roles of the art world of New York <coughs> as themselves around their thing. So you got this woman uh, who went after uh, uh, Buzz, objecting, creating a bunch, and then writing a bad review of Buzz, but then is able to take away his grant money. <laughs> you know, virtual grant yeah. money by cutting out all his archive and then to repent later or do a satire repent. I, I think it's incredible the, the psychic or the psychological postures people are going through with this ultimate Bauhaus utopian dream from the Bauhaus, you know, that everybody become right. an artist. Look what it's become. And what art is today is actually creating a scene like you did, Buzz, and 8-Bit, to watch the crazy reactions to then create wonder in you about the range of human idiocy. <laughs> it, it really is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So, and now Chad Nante is here. Chad, do you have some ideas in between these two guys to add to this? Yeah, yeah, lots of good stuff. Um, Back to like McLuhan with Mechanical Bride and then Warhol with the Campbell Soup Can, it's like they were, it would sort of implicitly make the definition of art anything that makes people aware of the friction that they're working for. 
So in that case, they would have been pointing to the friction of the old sense of print copyright versus the new electric environment where you can't own anything. Nothing can be bought, sold, or stolen. So, yeah, well, this is the this is the new uh, you know as we transition out of the old world. I mean, it's amazing to me how many people are still living in like 1890 and shit like that. So what's happening now? Like uh, I was talking to a Chinese financial executive about intellectual property, and he said, "Oh, you know, China's really big now on uh, cleaning up our intellectual property thing." And I said, "What a bunch of bullshit! This is this is the death uh, rattle of a dying industry trying to save its last few pennies before it goes into the grave." He was shocked. He thought, you know, like everybody was really up on this intellectual property thing. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's like it's just bullshit, man. It's just corporate corporate death knell of, you know, the end of things. People trying to protect something that can't be protected and uh, trying to, to, to make a few bucks before their whole thing collapses on top of them. Yeah, and let me add so to that. Anyway. Let me add to that equipment McClune pattern, and one that I get immediately, east going west and west going east. The corporate guys for intellectual property is propping up private identity, which came in, and private ownership came in with the printing press. You have the Chinese culture, which didn't have that private ownership, still don't, according to people right. I listen to. Right. They, Yet they the don't. corporate, they the, you have this new article that came out uh, in Canadian Business last week, uh, talking about the shell of industry in China. All these buildings are going up, but there's nobody to occupy them. It's almost like they're, t- they're cloning New York City or an industrial city, dumping it over there, but the peasants aren't moving fast enough to get in there. So here's this corporate guy, I'm assuming, putting on the non-Chinese value of intellectual property or private ownership, because that's a novelty, a novelty to him. He thinks that's what the West values. He doesn't know right. that the West is getting wiped out on that level technologically. So you see the dynamic right. that McLuhan's saying that it goes into what you're just describing. Right. Yeah. Well, the, as far as uh, that's right, they, they are trying to they're trying their hardest to figure out what the hell the West is up to and, <laughs> and to try and and to try and kind of, you know, get close to it so that they'll the West will shut the fuck up and let them go on with their lives. So that's where they're kind of at. <clears throat> so they're really big on this intellectual property thing because the U.S. government has been pressing it like a bunch of Nazis all over the globe, you know, this intellectual property, trying to protect their last industry, the music and movie business. Right. Now, I, I don't judge that impulse, because I recognize it's a heavy Western culture meme. It made me think the way I thought as a, as a person growing up. I had a private identity and worked towards some kind of oh, original right. consciousness. You know, that's the private legacy. I learned eventually what the ground of that is. But I can recognize it as right. a meme continuing. And the corporations lie because they don't tell you that's what they're doing. They're just riding on the hypnosis of that afterimage. What's funny, if you've got oh, yeah. a modern American named Buzz Kosin, who worked at the high levels of corporate life in New York City, sitting in Beijing, being, quote, Chinese, <laughs> not trying right. to own anything. Right. And yeah, Chinese well, people telling you that they're Westerners. <laughs> they're trying real hard. I mean, I keep telling them that they're imitating the wrong stuff. You know, there's other things <laughs> that they to imitate. <laughs> now, that's a great thing for, for the simulated life. The, the criticism, buddy, you're imitating the wrong stuff. <laughs> right. 
That's good. Yeah, they just don't, they they because their their understanding of the West is just as distorted as any Westerners' understanding of them is. You know, they yes. I mean, unless you live in this environment, you'll never figure out what's going on in China. You just can't, and even I can't figure out what's going on in China, but I'm here, <laughs> so I can kind of see it happening. You know what I mean? And get a sense of how they are and what they do. But if you're on the other side of the world, all you have to deal with is this image created by Western propaganda, and uh, it's completely different from what it is. But you know, nonetheless, that's all you got. Right now, and we could go they into they're, they're kind of they're kind of stuck with that too. They 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 don't have their own propaganda about the West, but they do have all the Western propaganda coming in. So their impression of the West is based on the Western propaganda. <laughs> So, so uh, uh, 8-Bit, you did, what are those three styles of video you made or were part of speed bumping or something in the late 90s? Remember that, that little essay on that three types? Could you go into that a bit? Yeah, the three, you mean when we weren't allowed to show the artist, but we had to make a video about the song? So it was, well, well, it was a kind of hacking. It was, is speed something? Does that remind you? Anyways, talk about some of the wacky stuff you were involved in in the media world in the late 90s. Well, when I was still in film school, and I was also, uh, I also was, had a record contract, so I was, I was producing techno for this dance music label, but I was still in school for film. So I pushed the label and I said, you know, you guys need some music videos to promote your artists, because at the time, techno had no... Uh, videos. There was no video to go with the techno song because they were so sterile and lacked any sort of artistic individuality. Repetitive four four beats with you know a synth line and a build up, and that was it. So they said, okay, let's experiment with this. And around that same time, MTV had uh, put together a show called Amp, and Amp was going to come after another show called Liquid Television, which was experimental animation and it was a late-night, midnight show on MTV. And then and after that midnight show, they would then show this experimental video art show called AMP, which I managed to somehow get involved with creating videos for. And now, you know, here's the, uh, here's the clincher. So here we have these registered works, these techno, this techno music, which at the time was very niche, and only, you know, X amount of people listened to it in the United States. Um, with, we had Viacom, which was now putting out these tiny labels' music through their broadcast waves attached to visuals. These artists didn't want to be in the videos because the whole idea behind techno spirituality and te Terrence McKennaisms is, well, we don't want our faces shown. This is about the music. Yeah, we don't want a private identity. We want to be Chinese. Right. We want, we're all internalized. We're internal. We're 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 not. We're external and internal. We've transcended identity. So I couldn't convince the artists to be in the videos. <laughs> so I had to come up with ways to promote the song and, and make visuals for the song that matched what we were trying to do as quote unquote ravers. So in, in effect, I made these three videos over the course of the late '90s, from I think '96 on to. Uh, 99, which was the last one before it exploded in my face. Um, and I made these three videos. They had budgets. 
I mean, Buzz, imagine if somebody gave you a budget to do what you do with your videos. <laughs> you know, I, That'd be fun. I literally went out there and I was cutting stuff up. I was taking footage. I didn't have enough footage, so luckily I was in film school. So I had other friends of mine who were making their experimental shorts. And what I would do is I would take little clips from their experimental shorts and I would put it into these music videos. And, um... And one of the first ones was the Atomic Babies, was the name of the group. And the Atomic Babies had a song called Purple. And I was, I was hired to make a video for this song called Purple. And you can see it on YouTube. And the video doesn't make any sense at all. It's aliens and uh, Amiga effects and, and, and lots of different pulsating earth fetuses and, and that go with the beat and, and, and embossed filters mixed with Super 8 footage of pentagrams from, you know, the streets of Soho and East Village. It's really random stuff that, that I just put together in my, in my apartment. And um, so we send it to MTV for, for AMP. This is the first, this is the first video. So we do three. And they say, you have to take the fire out. You can't show this video <laughs> because there's too much fire in it. And I said, what fire? There's no fire in the video. And they said, well, it's just, there's, a, there's fire at, X, you know, at a minute 15 in of a, a animal that goes on fire. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I said, I said, hold on a second, but you're showing music videos of people shooting each other, waving money in the air with, you know, with, with songs. And, and, um, and um, basically, they said, yeah, but if we show fire, it might incite kids to set fires. So I had to cut the what looked like a fire out. <laughs> so that's just one example of what I was dealing with. Well, okay, that, that's typical court, you know, typical suit corporate behavior. You know, they got to do something to justify their existence. So that's it. Don't no, tell them to take the fire out. There, we've done something today. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, the, the environments they create technologically create anarchy and wreck civilizations, yet they must remain standard bearers of 18th century values of some kind of moral, virtual, print, private identity value system. That's the hypocrisy. Well, well that's, that's their stated thing. But really yeah. what they're doing is they're just justifying the fact that they're getting paid. Yeah, they have to do something. I see, I see your point. They it's have efficient. to do something, right. Yeah, that's efficient causality. They must be efficient at something. And, right. and more and more. Is, otherwise, you can't just get paid to do nothing. That was my secret of corporate success is I was willing to get paid to do nothing. <laughs> and you pulled that off for years. Uh, for years of doing nothing and getting paid for it. I was highly <laughs> paid and doing nothing, and everybody was happy with that. Okay, I found the C-Theory article uh, 8-bit. It's uh, by Seb Franklin. It's called On Game Art, Circuit Bending, and Speed Running as Counter Practice. And then the subtitle is Hard and Soft Non-Existence. Yeah, so they gave this stuff names after the fact. I mean, speed running and circuit bending. This was, circuit bending is when you take a toy that has that makes noises and then you manipulate it to make other noises or speed bend speed bending is what you do to video but this was a form that we were experimenting with before it had a name and it's nameless so i guess the post literacy of what we were doing out of the techno spirituality desire to not show something created this 
speed running, which kids would later then study. And but I don't I don't call it that. I just call it you know. Now that's a good example of the the cultural meme of writing and printing and having private identity in the West, which you can't stop. The kids go to school and they uh, art school, literary school, whatever, linguistics, and they see your work, and then, then they write essays on these categories that you never even knew of. And then that brings us to the multimedia world you are, 8-Bit, because you, stranger that you are, have just released a book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody who wants to get it, it's called Halal Pork, H-A-L-A-L, second word, P-O-R-K, and other stories. Is that you on the cover as a little boy? That is, it is. It's yeah, funny because here we are talking about contrast and, and hacking the system, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, we don't, we're not talking about the Gutenbergian model. We're not talking about words. We're talking about video and what Buzz is doing, and we're talking about Warhol. And, and, and I just did a book, and the whole, the whole idea is, is of the book is, is that contrast. It's halal pork, <laughs> you know, and other stories. So there's, there's a couple of hacks going on there. And, um, Including and, the uh, dedication. This book is dedicated. It comes out on Upset Press out of Brooklyn. And um, it's dedicated to Chowder Jackson, the illegitimate stepchild of Joe Jackson, father of the Jackson Five. And Chowder, unfortunately, was thrown into the alligator swamps in 1979. <laughs> right. How old was he? How old was he? We'll finish the rest of it. There's more yeah. to it. Had, had he lived, this book would not need to have been written. <laughs> <laughs> right, poor, poor Chowder Jackson. Michael had to take the throne. Yeah, you know, this is homeopathic and extreme. You're finding something that didn't live for many years and is symbolic up against the macro icon of Michael Jackson. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> but tell us a story. What, how, is this a real story, or you made it up? Or <laughs> what, what happened? Who is this kid? Well, the, the press wanted a dedication, and I didn't feel that I needed to dedicate the book to anyone because it wasn't a book, right? <laughs> to me, this wasn't. This isn't a book. It's. It was an experience of writing it. So to dedicate it to someone would give it like some homage to something that no, didn't have anything to do with it. And people were upset with that, you know, especially the parents. They're <laughs> dedicated to them. Everybody, has the, everybody expected me to dedicate it to them. Everybody, everybody, everybody has a great sense of personal identity. I'm sure, Bob, you expected me to dedicate it to you. Oh, yes. Well, you did want me, you did want me to write the forward, but uh, it was censored or something. They wouldn't let me write the forward. <laughs> But, but yeah, the private identity aspect, they say you must dedicate this to the archetype of literacy, a private person. But I'm asking, what are the details of this strange phenomenon? Joe, Joe Jackson did do this? It's known? Uh, actually, no. There, there is no known record of Chowder Jackson, an illegitimate stepchild of Joe Jackson. Wow, that's great. You, just, you, yeah. <laughs> you found a victim in a victim <laughs> culture. But that's between us. Yes, between okay. Us and everybody on this conference call. <laughs> yeah, not the people who hear it. Those that are hearing it, change your name. If you hear this later, do not utter and repeat this fact. <laughs> you can hear this. You can hear this. Burn after reading. Me, right? Yeah, burn exactly. after burn before reading. But the uh, oh, burn. yeah, you right. know, burn after. 
Uh, Burn after reading, uh, uh, Buzz. I just watched that a week ago. Fun movie. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Right. I yeah, love the ending scene. Yeah. Do we ever learn? Maybe we could do it. Hey, Palmer, do we I ever think. really learn anything? What have we learned from this, Palmer? I don't know, sir. Uh, well, I guess we learned not to do it again. And uh, he says, yeah, I guess so. And, he, and then he says, fuck if I know what we did. <laughs> and he, he just slams the folder closed and goes, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> and yeah, his head shaking no, and the camera pans out and it's the end of the movie. And right. that, I right. say that, that image of that guy is what's happening in every institution, been happening ever since the internet showed up. Everybody, the president says that at least once a week, the head of the CIA, the head of corporations, the Chinese banker right. you were telling that's all for electric cover, they're all saying that five lines, Buzz. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Even yeah. Sheehan, that's he's I saying, he's, when she, uh, Sheehan, when 8-Bit uh, hears about these essays about circuit bending and speed running, he, he says, that, well, they're calling what we did this, but that's not what we did, or something like that, but I don't know what we did, but I guess we better not do it again. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it's a funny is that the, the punchline of that movie, you know, those those characters, the two CIA guys, or yeah. who are, they're supposed to be CIA, they only appear for maybe a total of, you know, I don't know, seven minutes in the whole movie. But That's right, very them, minor. Movie, right, but, but without them, the movie just doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> and well, they're the monitors. They're the YouTube guys monitoring, keeping order in society, and offing who needs to be off. Right. Right. Guys, I'll be right back. i got to run real quick. I'll be back. Okay, great. Okay. Yeah, hey, wait, wait, Sean. You know how to call in? Do, do I call you? How are you going to get back? Did he go? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, maybe he, he did. might have just put down the phone. Yeah, I just put down the phone. Okay, good. So, Chad, Nante, what ideas do you have? Or anybody else? Earlier when you were talking about how the trolls are... Uh, like policing copyrights for YouTube. Um, I came across a thing recently called artificial artificial intelligence, and it's um, <laughs> it's a big thing through Amazon.com where instead of like getting computers to do these really complicated tasks that only humans can really do at this point, they actually just use humans to do it. But they're little they're called human intelligence tasks, so that would make it possible for like the extensive scanning of all the video content on YouTube to find like, you know, copyright infringement or, you know, any kind of violation is that there's actually people behind it. And Amazon has automated the process of farming out these little tasks of say, looking at a video and, you know, do you notice any copyright infringement in it or, or any of these other terms being violated? And it well, turned, they, they created a whole infringement. Like, sorry. The copyright infringement is handled by bots, but I wondered how they review these videos because what I love about it is that somebody's got to go watch my video to see if it violates community standards once it's been reported. So I couldn't imagine YouTube actually hiring people to do that. So now you've explained it to me that Amazon.com has probably got somebody from Czechoslovakia working for a dollar an hour looking at Buzz videos to see if he violated you know, community standards. Yeah, they get paid like 
per unit. So they get, you know, like 25 cents per video or something like that. Yeah, and, there you uh, go. They've, yeah, they've effectively created an economy around being a troll, you know. Yeah, hey, yeah check. that's cool. I wondered how they did it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, che- okay, since we are pretending this is McLuhan related, McLuhan wrote, I think in Take Today, that people, maybe even understanding media, that people in the future will be paid to read newspapers. Yeah. Hmm. He saw that pattern. Yeah, mm-hmm. He didn't see that they would be paid you know, to watch nothing, quantum particle nothing videos, but the point that the newspaper world, as a me- that's a medium. It's a, part of a, it's a new product of nature. And so that animal mm-hmm. must be preserved. So they'll pay people to keep the newspapers going. I read about Bill Keller, the head guy at the New York Times, was at some public meeting. And some old guy said, why should I, once a week or even any day, go out and get your hard copy New York Times when I can read a, the New York Times for free and a lot more of it on the Internet? And Bill Keller, you know, he was like, didn't know what to say. So he said, well, I like the feel of newspapers. We're, right. This, this, this... We're printing newspapers for those fanatics with a fetish over holding paper and don't like reading it on the Internet. Now, think of that, an executive justifying his whole environment that way. But the underlying thing is he knows we must keep that experience going, even though it's impractical on efficient causality terms. You must make it available so people can hold the paper because that is the sensory effect, where the medium is the message, the medium itself. Well, this is... Right, and and this is like what I when I started predicting electronic books, you know, ten years ago, people would say, oh, I I I must hold a book in my hand. Now it's true <laughs> that anybody you know of a boomer generation probably has to hold a book in his hand, but nobody that's twenty will be holding a book in their hand by the time they're fifty or something like that, you know. So that's right. Me, that, I, that that experience is going away. Yeah, now, you know, the Zen practice, and you've done Zen practice and meditation, the meditation is to observe your mind as it reacts to things. As I walked along the beach the past year here in in Maui, more and more I see people holding the little Kindle thing. And my mind was saying, ooh, I don't, that's creepy. I had the whole training, the book preference of holding the book. I don't even read books much anymore. But that that, uh, genetic mimetic memory talked back when it saw people holding these things it didn't it didn't look right or looked off or i didn't know if i could do that you know what i mean now i i did not i don't get the kindle i don't read books that way but the point is i recognize that part of my self-awareness includes that conditioned response to a new environment that that proved mcclellan right there just by my reaction to the kindle right we we grew up conditioned for to books and so the whole idea of transitioning to an electronic format, we have to learn to do it a different way. Like books has a whole experience to it that you know how to do. You know, you remember what page something's on, you underline it, you do all that. Well, now the people with the Kindles are developing a whole new technique. But before, by the way, reading goes away. I mean, how much longer can reading go on? Another no, no, year, reading, McCoon's point, reading will always carry on because that's – a natural extension of the eye. It's a product. Of, it's like an animal, and you don't kill the animal. It, it has a right to survive, and th- it's the, well, and no I mean, it, no a, individual would do that. But but let me just say this: first. no individual. Would, an individual might agree with you, but the collection, the collective meme, wherever that is, 
keeps it going. Right. No, no, no tool ever completely goes extinct, that's for sure. But it won't be a, a mass phenomenon the way it is now. You know, I mean, it'll, I mean, it's already at the end of the mass phenomenon. Another 20 years, there'll be more icons, more graphics, more sound, and less words. That's, that's inevitable. Okay, but it, it depends on the environment. I never saw so many people read as when I lived in New York for 15 years. Everybody's on the subway reading. But that's because the conditions right. of New York City, you got that empty time, so you read. And then I see here right. on the beach, I never see so many people reading as I see on the beach. That's what they do on the beach. So reading is preserved yeah, you, by certain factions, certain, certain uh, environments. Well, what you, so what you need to do is you need to travel through Asia and watch people killing time the same way, except they're looking at an iPod or a phone and they're watching a movie or they're listening to music or something like that. They're not reading. They're watching. They're viewing things on a phone. They're watching the movie. They're watching the TV show. They're listening to music. Who knows what they're doing? But I don't see anybody in Asia sitting around reading books or reading anything. They're looking well, at electronic devices. Yeah, that proves McLuhan. The user is the content. The West will continue reading because we were mimetically controlled by that for 300 years or condition. And the oral tactile culture of Asia cannot leave that. They remain oral tactile. So they go with the media that they use the new media for what they already are. Yeah, but, but I just saw in this article uh, on one of these uh, you know, website things about how MBAs can't write. And it's pretty obvious to me that the whole skill of writing and the whole skill of reading has greatly diminished in the last few years. Like, I've read thousands of books, but I know that my kids combined haven't read a couple of hundred books, you know? Right. So it's like... Here's, let, know, let's define when, this better. Uh, Eric McLuhan did a talk in the McLuhan Conference... Uh, back in 1998, UFT, I think. And he showed how the way people type memos net changed over 15 years with different kinds of computer and before and in the later computer. And he was showing the shifts. You see the shifts. And there's, there's no, no doubt that writing and uh, reading as what you do to survive does not have any impact. But what you do in your leisure time or with your other selves is where the books come in. Do you see what I mean? Definitely, they do not have to write or know anything about books. They will read them, but they do not use writing in their life, in their working life, what Marshall called the constitutive, constitutive part of their lives. That's what you're saying is obsolete, and that's right, the constitutive part. Well, I'll take it further. I mean, I really don't see this whole literate sensibility persevering long term. I think that uh, you know the No, that's true. No, that's true. I don't think people reading. are literate. They're not literate the way it was 200 years ago. They've gone through various things. Right. And so when people say that books is over, Marshall said in 66 in that Gerald Stern interview in Hot and Cool that they've been saying it for 100 years that books are over. What's interesting and Marshall noticed that and it's in the cliché archetype book, why does it persist even though it's totally anemic and on welfare so to speak? It does persist, so we may never, as Marshall ends one of his books, Take Today, there is no finish line, not cultures are business, there is no finish line for any of these media. That's a factor to consider right. when you're wondering how disappeared it's going to be. Right, I agree with you. I don't think it's ever going to go completely away. There will always be some use of words and some use of literacy and things like that, but 
I think that in you know 40 years it will be so far diminished that that nobody from today, if they're still alive, then would recognize it as being you know writing or things like that. Okay, so this is where you get the nobody meme. has the attention span. Right, yeah, the memes this is where for you're... sure will persevere. Right, right. but yeah. here's the ba- this is where the global theater of memes comes in. You've got uh, people watching football. You know, every week in the stadiums with the big jumbo screens and the tr- told tribal mania that their grandparents would be shocked at, their literate grandparents, at their rude behavior in this mass mind. Whereas then that's the West trying to be East, and then you got the Eastern guy like that businessman trying to be West. And they're just being an image, as you say, a simulation, a thought about a thought pattern they heard that culture had. Right. Bob, can I talk yeah. about Well, yeah, then. Go ahead. Okay, is that Angela? Yeah. Okay. Um, no, it, like basically it's the evolution because of the internet and computing. It's like basic evolution that text is disappearing and visual is the new language because as time goes on in with the evolution of like physical how you view information or how you view learning, everything becomes more color. So at the moment you've got the the changeover of the second edition of computing and that's going into the iPad and all that kind of stuff where it's portable visual learning. So the idea of having the the visual layout of a laptop with a keyboard and a screen and it being so heavy that people like have back aches carrying it around, it's non-functional. So it's evolved into like a smaller, um, more colorful, everything is displayed through image because you if you are viewing information you have the option of watching a video, listening to audio, or reading text, and everyone nearly almost instantly, if they're like engaging in the computer, 100% attention, they'll watch a video. Do you know? Okay. The, the, now the visual, the images, this is taken. That's long gone. We're trying to figure. I'm trying to point out or figure out what's going on on that beach. Are books just for beach activity? Because you see a lot of people on there reading their books, but they're also listening to their iPod and checking their uh, email on their little iPhones or well, whatever they've got. They're on TV. The book is a here's, here's the ride. thing. What would you well, say, Chad? Again, think of the demographic. Oh. Yeah, Chad. Oh, so, go ahead, Chad. Sorry, this, uh, this is actually transparency. Hey, okay, go oh, ahead. Hey, transparency. Uh, the, the book is a carnival ride. It's like a roller coaster that people climb into and go for their subjective ride through through the book it doesn't even matter what it's about you know they'll yeah but it, now that's true now do you know that's what McClure meant by put on he defined yeah. that activity as a put on you put on the medium to massage yourself so you're right mm-hmm. to go through a, but, a kind of a ride and he had himself photographed beside a uh, ferris wheel the book is obsolete hardware but wait 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 let's say what transponder yeah. what he says to what i said oh it, it's uh yeah, it, it's it's an adventure. It's a fun little thing you get into. It's it's completely safe and artificial. You know, you you, you get inside and, and you go for your ride, and you get out when you want. And uh, you know. And you know what, transponder? That is one of the core images in Finnegan's Wake. Marshall yeah. reviewed Finnegan's Wake and said that Joyce drove a you know mixed media fantasia. He saw that the book partly included all media, but included driving around a town and the sensory impressions of that. So I'm showing you how the idea you're coming up with is embedded in Finnegan's Wake, written, you know, almost 100 years definitely, ago. Definitely. I, I, I can totally see it. But Bob, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, Bob, what I was going to say is that you also have to remember the demographic you're dealing with in Hawaii. 
So what you're dealing with is you're dealing with boomers and people who are slightly before the boomer generation who are affluent, who are also readers. The, this this is not twenty year olds sitting on the beach. No, they, they are. No, that that's what <laughs> you haven't been to the beach lately. That's what amazes me. These are eighteen, nineteen teenagers reading books. They're reading Twilight, which well, is a movie that uh, it's a book that became a movie that became a book again. And right. It, they, they're re, they're reliving <laughs> the cinematic experience through the book. That's and, true. And the book personalizes the experience as well because they can become that character. You know what I mean? They're driving the avatar of that character. They can replace the mm. act- actress with themselves. Like, that's the beauty yeah, they the, certainly the are not reading books to get facts, to have a, a, opinions and appear good in some debate like they did with Dr. Johnson 200 years ago. Yeah, but they're using the book to be disconnected from the Android meme. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's hyper-subjective. Well, the electronic book. Yeah, but but I, I still go back to the demographic issue because they're, they're, it's the, anybody who goes to Hawaii, generally speaking, uh, is from you know the tourists anyway. They're affluent, yeah. upscale people, and these are kids of upscale, affluent people who are being put into those uh, you know upscale, affluent prep schools that teach you how to continue the reading meme. Buzz, they're that was a few years ago. Uh, it's totally changed here, yeah. and I've watched it. I've been here almost three oh. years. Because of the depression here. No, listen. Because of for people to wake um, to uh, to have books instead of. uh, Hey, quiet! Just a minute! Just a minute! Just a minute! Buzz, the the no, it's important. Buzz, get this, and all of you. There's a depression here, so the hotels are going bankrupt, and they're offering really good deals. So I only see fat working people on the beach now. Okay, these are people who could never come here before now can get here and stay in a thousand dollar room for a hundred bucks, and that's. And so wow. all the beautiful people I don't see as much. They've got wind that something's that ain't happening. It ain't glistening here. And so, but those people are reading. Uh, they're young. But so the demographic you have is the mid mid two thousands buzz for Hawaii, not the Hawaii today. But this is a basket aside, case economy here. Aside from the demographics, just look like um, the screen of the Kindle is black and white. There's high contrast, and when you're out in the sunlight. If you try to watch a movie on one of those little screens, like a color movie, usually the the brightness of being on the beach in Maui would yeah. um, it would dilute the image on the screen. It'd be very hard to see the movie, but because the Kindle is such a high contrast, black and white, it's actually possible to engage easily yeah. with. Yeah, I would, I would query this uh, looking at uh, the... Is that uh, Andrew? Andrew Crystal? Is that, is that who I told to shut up a second ago? I thought it was Robert from Tottenham. That's Andrew. Yeah, no, I, I can do an impression of Robert. I, I value Robert's contribution. You've got to look at, uh, I guess also as well, the book in relation to uh, other media, like all these people on the beach, they're near naked. And so why is it that uh, reading goes with um, a near naked state? Is it these like people with formal vestiges of some uh, literate uh, sensibility require um, a book so that it's almost like a, uh, what would you call it, a, a, a novelty screen to protect your nudity? Yeah, I think you're saying that the meme of book uh, it gives them the patina of privacy in relation to the anonymity cluster grouping of the beach. No, yeah, because I'm sitting around half naked in a bikini or in those uh, little mudgy smuggler togs. <laughs> somehow having this uh, um, like book makes me feel uh, less naked. 
Uh, you're right. I think you've got some there. For Westerners, that's what, that's what they're doing. Whereas maybe the, uh, the Chinese people that Buzz is seeing, they see the uh, higher elites going corporate and left hemisphere and Western, so they feel protected by putting on the oral corporate uh, digital media. Yeah, well, Bob, the, the other thing to look at is when you're on a beach, you're in nature, and the book is nature. It's trees recycled, yeah. whereas you've got yeah, like metal that comes from like the bottom underneath the earth, and it doesn't sync up with like the atmosphere, the ambience of a beach. You know what I mean? What, do, what doesn't what doesn't sync up? The metal of the computer, like the the AI or the artificial intelligence. Well, everybody's got their little iPhones, isn't that metal? Yeah, I know, but like there's a romance in reading a book. It's like different technological stimulations. Like a book is a technology, you know. So like it's a different feeling place. And if you're on a, on a beach, right. like you're okay. So I get what you're saying there, Angela. So McClure yeah. would look at this and say, yes, the book serves new purposes now. I mean, kids go to school to be an artist, to take English, whatever they take. That world ain't there anymore. Like Buzz is making YouTubes because he likes to, and look at the contrast he gets in his life, the hassle in that. Maybe he likes it. But the, the new media is used differently for what the manufacturers thought it was for, and the old media is retrieved and used differently. That's the cliche archetype tetrad process, if we want to remind us of McLuhan. Right, Andrew? Would you uh, correct that? Yeah, yeah, it's nice. No, that's um, a, a nice rap. Okay. Well, Back and, you know the the other thing though is that they're not uh, they're not really re are they reading paper books on the beach still, Bob, or are they just yes, all reading yes. titles now? Yes, and new books. And without being rude, I'm very nosy. I try to see the titles and what's going on. I don't know any of these books. Never seen them. The other day, I noticed someone reading a Penguin classic. You know, 22 years old. I said, "Holy shit, that must be a college student." You know, reading a real book, not this glossy airport stuff that people have hardcover things. It's incredible the millions of books that are being read. I don't recognize any of them. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, environment. Are comics and manga popular in Asia? Oh yeah, um, uh, pick, they they they're much more into pictures because their their um, their written language is more like pictures. So it's not truly a picture lang a written language, but it's similar. And and so. Anime originates in Asia, and that's where um, it's uh, the the best anime comes from. Both Japan and and China, mainly Japan, but China's big into it, and the rest of Asia as well. They've got the perceptual organs or brain for making it. Yeah, they're, they they have a different way of looking at things, as you can well imagine. You know, so it's uh, and hearing things. Think of, not just looking, hearing things and touching things. What is America known for? Kinetic space. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll and movies. That's what America's meme is, kinetic. So, so is anime tactile, proprioceptive, or just pictorial? Well, I would say it's uh, tactile uh, in the sense that there's a gap between the, the image and the eye, and, and, so, and they see things in that gap that, that I don't see. Right. You know, okay, Andrew. Like when they... Uh, no, go ahead, finish your sentence, and I want to ask Andrew something. No, no, I, I'm done. Okay, Andrew, I'm interested in what, how you would interrogate Buzz. You weren't here the first. Could you go back over your questions and ask him in your way, what does he think he's doing, and why is he doing it? Yeah, well, that, um, that's exactly the, the question. I, was, um, uh, I, I came in at uh, five minutes to seven, and uh, you guys were in uh, mid-flight, so we never actually got any uh, 
um, consolidation of theme, or I guess uh, I missed the introduction of Buzz as uh, a special uh, guest of honour. So, yeah, I'll just put it to you straight, Buzz. Um, how do you how do you describe to other people what you do, and, and what do you think is the value in what you do? Well, unfortunately, I don't have to describe to anybody what I do, so uh, I've been spared that. Uh, basically, all I think I'm doing is playing around with images and sound. And uh, I like to play around with images and sound that interest me uh, personally. And, and so um, the, uh, the reason I like the McLuhan stuff was that it was because of McLuhan's work that I became interested in playing around with images and sound. So I enjoy using his ideas, either spoken by him or others. So that, that's kind of what I think I'm doing. Uh, and why I'm doing it, I have no idea. It's kind of a way to it's a way to kill time, really. You know, like I don't have a garden here, uh, like I used to have in Hawaii. See, there was a time when I lived from 2001 uh, to about 2003. I lived disconnected from all media, the internet, computers, all that. And uh, what I basically did was garden and uh, visit people and hang out and do things like that. But then when I got back into the media thing, I, I needed some other stimulation, something to keep me occupied, and so I began playing with videos to do that. Well, you say you got back into the media thing and you needed stimulation. The media thing what did not stimulate you? No, the media does stimulate me, but when I was living without the media, I had other stimulants, more natural stimulants, like gardening and hiking and living in the no, woods. No, earlier technologies. Like earlier, not more natural, earlier technologies. Yeah, okay, earlier technologies. But yeah, that yeah. was what interested me in that period of time. And then I gradually moved back into uh, civilization and in, in the process. And got a computer. Got a computer, right? Right. I, well, and, and, and back in 2004 I, or 2003, I bought another computer. I bought a laptop, and I began to re-enter civilization using that. Virtual and, uh, civilization. So Virtual. I, from your yeah, hut, right. from the, the wilderness, you could enter into the present with the computer. Right. Exactly. So that's, that's what I did. I, after taking about a two- or three-year break, I came back to it. it had and you wanted to add to it. It made you want to be involved. You wanted to uh, submit your creations. Well, yeah, I, I enjoyed being creative. And so uh, there was a, there a natural outlet for me to uh, dump my creativity to. It's, uh, it's fun to be creative, but it's also fun to have people react to the creativity. Yeah, so you've got that, an instant yeah, audience. That's like a factor. That. You've got an instant audience right. that you, would talk to you. Right. Hey, if, I, if I was just doing a thousand – what's that? A right. nano community. Right. <laughs> you, exactly. you found a nano community. I mean, uh, some of the nano communities here right now, like Transpondency. I don't actually know him, but uh, I but I've watched his videos and he's watched mine and we've communicated back and forth. So he's part of that nano community of people I don't know. In fact, that's I right. Have but and just let so me acknowledge, Transpondency emailed me the other day for the first time. I don't remember. It was some intellectual questioning. Uh, maybe he. Submit the question, but yes, I recognize the name. It's not all new to me right now, though. Yeah. Go all ahead, right, Buzz. So, what yeah, you were saying? So, well, so I now know more disincarnate people than <laughs> I know people in the flesh. That's right. You know, like I no. have more people I communicate with regularly who I don't know in the flesh 
than I know in the, that I communicate regularly with people in the flesh. Right. Now, let's, we know that you know, my five-body model is the most useful thing for this situation. So you don't know people in the chemical right. body. Well, how would you describe or paint or draw the chip body and the chip community you're in? Like, what, is, what does it look like? Does, it doesn't have any it sight, like right? It looks the like the videos. It looks like the videos. The video... The video is the nexus of the community. <clears throat> without, without the video, there's no community. Yeah, and that's, all, that's, that's ill propaganda and all those people that I've learned through your, your network. Those people are their style of making videos. That's what they are. That's their personality, what astrological sign they are, right? Right. Well, <laughs> video, some of them are, are, have more facets to it than that, but my relationship to them generally comes through the video thing. You, their chip, so the chip body is the video you make and, and, and shit out, expel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's the, uh, you know, what, what is it? The word became flesh, you know? Yeah. So this is the chip body became video. Right. Now, is, is the comments that people leave, are they chip bodies? Well, there's two types of comments that come, and I think they, they express the chip body. The, the two comments that, uh, you know, Il Propaganda and I started a couple years ago doing Fatic Joycean comments, you know. So From Finnegan's Wake. Just say, hey, right, instead of just saying that the normal Fatic, hey, nice video, really dig that, blah, 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 we just started throwing in Joyce quotes from Finnegan's Wakes to each other. Yeah. And uh, they fr practically have more meaning than any of the regular Fatic shit that gets put on there. <laughs> and then the other quote that I get that I really like is the criticism, because <clears throat> I think to myself, wow, I created a video that somebody hated enough and motivated them enough to say something negative about. <laughs> I mean, that... that to me, that meant I really touched a nerve, you know, because somebody took the time to type out, this sucks, you know, something like that. <laughs> but, but Buzz, wow. touched a nerve. McLuhan said, since the telegraph, the electric technology creates the desire for instant response. That is what's doing it. That's a sensory a reflex conditioning. Once the telegraph, radio, TV, and now the Internet, the people feel and know that they can respond, and they want to respond. So I'm just saying there is this. Right. Touch a nerve. When you extend the nerves, you get people responding immediately. Yeah, yeah. I don't get a, I, you know I don't get as much as I'd like, but uh, I know that the my my whatever it is has been successful in stimulating something. When somebody says this really sucks, you know, then I know. Wow, look at that! Somebody <laughs> took the time to tell me this sucked. This is great. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got I, a couple other questions as well. Um, it's um, I guess they extend. Like, how is this having an audience? This, like you sort of suggest that having an audience has changed what you've done. So this is like uh, McLuhan's. Uh, what is the effect of seeing yourself on screen? And um, and why did you pick Bob? Why? I mean, a lot of the work that you've done is focused on uh, remodulating and remixing Bob. What is it particularly about his <laughs> stuff that uh, you know turned you on, turned you off? Well, first of all, Bob puts out voluminous content. And, uh, you know, like uh, people talk about me being prodigious. I mean, Bob makes me look like a piker because he's got hours and hours and hours of shit. I, even I can't keep up with all of it. So uh, why Bob? Well, it turned out that uh, serendipitously Bob contacted me about, uh, you know, what I was doing with the McLuhan stuff. 
and over a period of time, uh, uh, we didn't do much. And then one day I was stuck in a place where I had absolutely nothing to do, and Bob was the only thing available to do. So I just started cranking out Bob bids. No, what you did, uh, Buzz, you, I had tried to make t- touch with you a couple months before, but you wrote back to me. You said, you know, Bob, I really don't want to do this, but I think I'll give you my phone number. I think I'll talk to you. That's the first email. <laughs> you capitulated. Well, it's true. You know, I, I, I just, uh, I really, uh, originally I wasn't really interested. Uh, but when first Bob contacted me, you know, I wasn't hip to the whole Bob Dobbs subgenius thing, you know. So I thought he was, you know, you know, Bob Dobbs and all that shit. And, uh, and he is, of course, Bob Dobbs, but, you know, not in the way I was thinking of the whole subgenius meme. And so uh, then when I found out all the controversy, I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do anything with this guy. You know, he's kind of wacky, and I don't know what he's up to. So I just right. put that, him off. That's what, that is what, yeah, yeah, that's what it was. You were, right. once you, you, you checked me out in the summer of 2008 and saw, well, I don't want to get involved with that guy. That's true. Yes. Right. And, and then, but then but you got then, so lonely. <laughs> Well, I had nothing. I absolutely, I was stuck at my mom's. I was, you know, I just got stuck there for a month and I had absolutely nothing to do. I ran out of pot and I was like, okay, it's time for Bob. <laughs> and, uh, and you and, emailed uh, me. And so, right. And then uh, we talked a few times when I was there and uh, I started listening to cash flow. And then, you know, I got hip to your whole scene and I, I kind of dug it. You know, I, I really uh, began to realize, oh, yeah, this is McLuhan stuff, but taken, you know, more modernized. You know, I think McLuhan would have eventually gotten to the five bodies. But, you know, unfortunately, he didn't live long enough to get there. So I saw how you were extending McLuhan's ideas. And uh, I thought, well, you know, this is kind of interesting stuff. And at that time, I was more into the you know, I was still using video as to be informative. You know, yeah. you were trying to tell people those, something. Just, right. Trying to wake <laughs> them up kind of thing. You know? Right. And, and, uh, it, so, and the, the, the McLuhan thing is the reason, because you already are interested in McLuhan. We talked about this earlier, Andrew. Someone sent me his first or second McLuhan vi- audio, video. I liked it. I got in touch, and then that was that. But so when we, when we reconnected, he's got this patina of the church of genius, but he said, okay, maybe I can talk to this guy. I've got nothing else to do. And then I started to tell him about my deep involvement with McLuhan, and I found out that Buzz was, that was the one man he wanted to meet, that he was involved in McLuhan. And actually that's where we bonded on, because I was able to tell Buzz all this McLuhan stuff that he didn't know about. Right. Yeah, and so and then I began to see how you were extending Mac's work, and so I thought, well, this is you know okay, this is you know worth doing. And plus, I had the time; I had plenty of time, nothing to do. And uh, even friends of mine were sending me emails saying, "What the hell's going on? All of a sudden, you're sticking out five videos a day. What's up?" You know, and like, well, out of pot, nothing to do, so here I am. <laughs> you know? And uh, and that's how we kind of got started. One thing that I think I've mm-hmm. noticed with your work is, um, is, is lately, the, strangely, with the volume of stuff that you're cranking out, there seems to be a, a, a precision and uh, intensity of image that was um, maybe not present maybe a year and a half ago. So it's almost like right. you, you're hitting a, a different uh, style, a different way. It's almost like this strange uh, synchronicity with the way that things are being... Uh, Accumulated and composed. Is that a fair? Assessment? Well, yeah, right. 
Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> What's happening to, is, from my point of view, is that because I'm doing so many of these things, I do a lot of Bob videos, and I do a lot of my own videos, that what's happening is my, my technique is refining and my style is evolving in the process of doing so many videos. Like the, I, I go back and look at stuff I did a year, a year and a half ago and think, oh, my God, I, I want to do it over, you know, because it's like it's not what I would do today. But, you know, that's so I even notice that my style and approach has changed over time. Have you noticed some uh, interesting accidents or what Bob would call uh, xenocrony? Oh, yeah. Uh, we're starting well, to uh, have some uh, prophetic effects or something like this? Well, what's happening is, uh, or what I started doing, when I first started doing the Bob videos back in 08, I was still making, uh, you know, or matching rather than making. I was trying to images that fit with Bob's words and use the music that fit with Bob's thing and all that kind of stuff. He used a lot of Zappa and things like that. But then, uh, I, some, somewhere in the last, I don't know, six months or a year, I began to do everything completely random and without thought. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it's uh, 100% random and 100% without thought, but it's pretty much 90% random and 90% without thought. And um, a but lot Buzz, of things like you're, Buzz, 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 I'm your Boswell. You're leaving out the channeling phase. What happened? The first contact when he said, hey, Bob, I'll talk to you. I'll even talk to you. September 30th, 2008. So he starts pumping out mm -hmm. these YouTubes the first couple of weeks of October. By the middle of, the Octo of October, Buzz, I call him up. He's panicking. He feels McClellan and Zappa's ghosts are around him, and he doesn't know why he's making what he's making. Yeah. Do you remember that phase? Right. Yeah, yeah, because there, there was one point where I did this McLuhan video that was almost pornographic. You know, certainly uh, YouTube would pull it today. And, uh, and I felt like it was McLuhan and Zappa were, you know, egging me on. Go for it. Go, you know, don't worry yeah. about our image. Just trash it up and do it. You know, <laughs> I really felt like I was channeling their energy into the videos for sure. Right. And that's very interesting. And Buzz, you can go to fivebody.com. Here is our first correspondence a year and a half before that, you, um, there's this opening, who are you, I like your work, and that, a little bit of phatic stuff. And then, then you say on April 21st, 2007, this is a year and a half before we connect, you say, Aloha, Bob, thanks for the feed forward. Glad you like the work. I feel like I'm channeling Mac when I put the video to his words. You already had the channeling yeah, right. thing in, in your mind. Well, but when I showed up, sure, it went into hyper mode. Right. Well, in the early phases when I was doing McLuhan, I was really surprised to see how well uh, these videos I was finding, you know, synchronistically linked up with his uh, work. I was able to yeah. find stuff really easily and quickly to do that. But I was doing it more of a, a making sort of process. But I was still finding these things that really synced up well with what he was saying. And, uh, and I would say that today what I do is I have, a, I have a container of several gigabytes worth of film just sitting there. And then all I do is I take the audio and I edit it, which is probably the most conscious part of the process where I decide, okay, here's the break, adjust the volume, do stuff like that. And then I just drag in random videos and random music. And it, it all seems to work together, at least for me anyway. Yeah, now I know the majority of people that watch your stuff find it too no If they're interested in hearing what I'm saying or Andrew's saying, they get mad at the noise right. level. Others 
find it too much and they don't have time to do it. Even I don't have time to watch it. I just listen to them to see what you excerpted to find out what I said. You know, I, mean, I use you to find out, right. to review what was said, and you find good stuff. I don't look at it too much. There's a lot of stuff I wish I had time to look at because it's just interesting to see uh, what's going on and what's on tape. So it's largely a tactile, non, non-content experience, and I don't know anybody who actually likes the buzz stuff for very long. That's the, they'll look at it for a while, and then after a while they get irritated. Now, these people are not making YouTubes. They're not involved in the dialogue. But you report when you go on Vimeo that there's 200 people show up in one minute. They're tacking you, they're tracking you. There's something within the nano community of people making it that they feel they've got to keep up with you. And you got to see what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, the, well, since I left YouTube, uh, YouTube chronically underreports the amount of uh, views videos get. You never really get a real uh, pick on this, and Vimeo would be the same way. So I'm on this new thing. Rob turned me on to it, Rob Window, and uh, called Posteros. And what I do is I put the videos one place, like Vimeo or Blip TV or something like that, and then I repost them onto Posteros. And on the Posteros site, the Bob videos are getting at least 200 hits every video uh, and quickly. And so then I put up this, yesterday I put up this buzz, you know, buzz, catch the buzz at the McLuhan Street Fight video, and it tanked. It didn't get hardly any views compared to what the Bob videos get on Bob. The bit buzz, they, don't care. they don't care about you. They care about your chip well, body. And you... <laughs> it could be, because what, was, what really fascinated me was that for a while there, I thought, oh, this Postero counting is in the opposite direction of YouTube. They overcount shit, you know, because there's no way that Bob's getting 200 hits per video. <laughs> and then so just, just you know, just, uh, you know, I figured, okay, I'll put up this video about, uh, you know, catch the buzz. And right now I'm looking at it. It's got 38, it's got 38 views. Uh, since I put it up yesterday, and all the other stuff from uh, the last, you know, f- ten videos or nine videos from uh, this last McLuhan series we did, you know, 142, 136, 134, 126, 122, 116, and if you go back, a, you know, a day or two, the the, the numbers are up in the 200s, uh, you know. So but the one about you, know. where where you're going to be a private identity and give your people talk about interview you and present your Playboy interview here, and nobody gives a fuck. Right, <laughs> right exactly. So I think, it, I think that kind of validates that there are people who are do, watching these videos, and that amazes me because, you know, like uh, 20 would be a big number for a bomb video, generally yeah. speaking on YouTube. 20, 30, that would be about it. So, uh, you know, yeah, and the, and the complaint about the noise and stuff, I mean, you know, this, this is, um, a, you're never going to get, uh, you, first of all, I realized at some point, you're never going to create anything that's going to make everybody happy. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's impossible. And even I go back and listen to some stuff later on and think, oh, shit, this is really noisy. But at the time I made it, it didn't sound noisy to me, you know. Are you smoking so, up um, while making, are you stoned or smoking marijuana or whatever while you're making them? Uh, a lot of times I am, but uh, recently I've run out. So, uh, like, all of the la- for the last two months I've been dry, and uh, all of these are done uh, normal, whatever that means. And anybody wants to <laughs> oh, okay, well, that's interesting to notice. 
Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I don't think that I, you know what I realized about uh, uh, herb is that it it doesn't necessarily enhance my creativity, but it uh, it's a it, you know like um, I did a lot of meditation and um, and so when you meditate, uh, uh, your body produces THC. Uh, this is why Buddhist monks spend 10 hours a day meditating because they're getting stoned meditating. They're, they're, yeah. Your body produces THC when you meditate. So the quick short effect of meditating is just to smoke it or take yeah. it in some form. So uh, all it does, all it really does for me is kind of quiet my mind down and, and uh, settle me down. It's, 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 you know, one joint is worth five hours of meditation kind of thing. Yeah, and you're saying it helps you focus on making videos. Because it quiets you away from well, distracting thoughts. Well, no, I don't think it has anything to do with the videos, one way or the other. To be honest with you, I just think as a as a substance, it has a kind of a calming effect in general. But um, I don't. Okay. I, I don't notice that it had any effect on creativity. Okay, Andrew, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. Uh, my Go last ahead. one. Um, in in into your practice. Uh, Buzz, do you think you've come to like a better understanding of like McLuhan's interpretation of Joyce? <laughs> well, um, not really. Um, I don't think I've come to a better understanding of anything, really, to be honest with you. I, I, this is one thing I like about Bob's five-bodied uh, model is the oh, mystery body. What's that? <laughs> what? It's I think it was somebody just, just introducing right. themselves. They just uh, riff right. Oh, I just arrived. Yeah, riff right. Okay, we know who that is. Okay, go ahead, Buzz. Okay, Bob, so, five uh, body model. Yeah, I think the mystery body is probably for me the most important part of Bob's model, because uh, you know the more I the more aware I become, the more aware I'm aware that I'm not aware of anything, that I'm wandering around in a very mysterious landscape. Uh, not not all of which can be easily explained, and uh, and uh, you know these models that people create like quantum mechanics and Buddhism and you know capitalism and all that shit are just attempts to try and explain a mystery landscape that that uh, I really can't explain. I, I know that there's a lot of, there's a lot more mystery. Uh, and uh, dark matter than there is clarity in uh, in what goes on around me. So that, that, if anything, that's what I know. I know that I know nothing <laughs> about what I'm in <laughs> and what's I'm, what I'm doing. Any more, Andrew? No, I'm I'm done. I'm I'm. This is uh, great. Thanks, Buzz. It's been a real pleasure to. Um, wait, 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 wait. No, no, we're not ending. Just for a seat. No, no, no I'm just saying. My bit's done. I'm, I'm yeah. going back to being a quiet listener. Okay, well, you might get some more things. Hey, Buzz, tell us how, you know, you're in Beijing, the center of the universe, in a lot of ways right now. Tell us, uh, Carol right. just got all excited. She had really, Carol's now coming on. And yeah, she wants to hear. Let's hear about Beijing and how, what's your, how's your day go? What time do you get up? Do you go in the park? What do you do? Daily. Well, you know, it kind of varies. But um, generally speaking, you know, I get up around 9 in the morning, something like that, you know, get a cup of coffee, have some fruit. Uh, check the internet, you know. Check email, you know. Look at some. You YouTube. go to your 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 sites on Vimeo and see what you get there. Well, no, Vimeo's a ghost town. I don't even. That, that's like it's just a place to stick videos. You know, there's nothing. Okay, Vimeo so what you're checking uh, your personal you're checking your personal email. I check. 
check email, you know, and then I, ch I read the news. I got a little dashboard that has all the headlines of all the various sources. So I got Chinese news. I got Russian news. I got U.S. news. I got tech news. You know, go through that shit. Uh, then I go to YouTube and check out videos. You know, I've, I have a channel that I don't put videos on, but I just watch other people's videos. So and you go to the YouTube that. main pa the main page of YouTube, which I've never lingered there long, but I've noticed that they present no, the latest no. high rating things or something. No, no, I don't. I don't watch that shit. That's pure. You know, that's designed to to screw your head up. What I do is I I subscribe to people whose videos I find interesting for one reason or another, and then uh, the way they've got it set up is when I go to my channel, which I've set up just to do this, I get uh, suggested to me all my subscribers all my subscriptions videos plus the things that they liked. So like Transpondacy may put up a video, but he also may have liked something or favorited something or stuff like that. So I'll go check that out. You, know, and you then go I to your nano community. Right. I go to the nano community and hang out there you know, until <laughs> about lunchtime. And, and then if the weather's nice, you see the weather's been pretty sucky for, you know, it's been winter here. So when the weather gets nice or if we have a nice day, I go out to the park near me and I ride my bike for like an hour or so. And that's a big park. I think I've seen it, right? Big park, right? It's huge, yeah. Yeah, it's like Chinese don't do anything small. So this, this thing is a huge park. It's like... Um, you know, probably five miles, ten miles square. It's got large amounts of trails. They're all paved, and, you know, it's landscaped and all that. And Have you so smoked far, up yet? Do you smoke up before you go on your bike? I mean, when you had yeah, it. If I got if I If I had it, sure. <laughs> you know, why not? Okay, so you smoke it up. And the, now you're going to get some exercise. You're going to use your chemical body. You're going to run around your bike for an hour. Right. Right. So I go out and ride the bike for an hour or so, get all sweaty and, you know, come back. And then... Um, Do you take a shower? You know, is, Do you take a shower? Uh, depending on how sweaty I get, yeah. If I get real sweaty, then I'm going to take a shower and, you know, clean up. And then, uh, you know, go back to the uh, the uh, chip body world. You go and, sit down uh, again. You go down, you sit down right. again and start... And now it's time right. for you to make, right? You've consumed, right. now you're going to make. Right. So then I'll make some videos and, you know, do some other stuff. And then... Um, What's the other stuff? What, what do you mean do some other uh, Oh, you, you mean uh, make, oh, just read stuff. Read, you know, read the news or read what's going on. Or Every now and then I'll, I'll make a comment on somebody's comment on a news article on the, on the printed side of the chip world. <laughs> and... Uh, Okay, so you're, you're a responsible citizen, commenting, uh, informed, up-to-date, and then how do you get the time to make 27, 26 YouTubes out of the second Maui seminar? How, where does that get done? Well, remember now, I'm not putting a lot of thought into this. So what I do is, <laughs> I, you know, like, you got, you, got, uh, the you got the audio track from the conversation. So I just listen to it. And I right, so that's part of your nano, minutes. listening to me or Andrew or whatever is part of your nano community. We right. produce so much stuff that right. you're going to listen to us every day, and you note what you like. Generally speaking, you guys have put out a lot of stuff, you know, so then I just have to listen to a few minutes of it. I get the audio, and then I, uh, you know, go to my little, you know, my little video palette, and I drag in some videos, and I drag in some audio, 
and I throw it together and I render it and I post it and then it's on to the next one. So, you know, it, it, the whole process, uh, the, the majority of the process is listening to uh, the audio, you know. Right. And now then, listen, uh, Buzz, this has never I, been said before. What you're saying is exactly how uh, Zappa made his music or he would attempt to. He called it synchrony. He would take one piece of music right. from some concert that he taped and another piece from some other concert and he knew on the surface they had nothing to do with each other. And he would throw them together, and he often was amazed that they would sync up according to his ears, and he called that strange synchronicity, or xenochrony, xeno meaning strange. You're doing the same thing. You're right. dowsing, grabbing, and hoping it doesn't match, and it often does. It's exactly what Zappa was doing. Yeah, so, that, that, you know, so I do that, and then... Um Around, uh, what is it, around 7 o'clock, oh, then around 5.30, I do yoga for about like an hour and a half. And I listen to NPR. Uh, oh, you know, come on. Gee, that, that's disgusting, listening to NPR. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, the inter- I like the interviews, and I like to see where, you know, the mainstream is really at, you know, kind of get that feel. Carolyn just yelled out, What's he's that? not even in China. <laughs> Well, and then and then or after yoga, I, ha- I take a short break and watch the the news in China, and then uh, <laughs> around eight o'clock, eight o'clock, I do an English lesson with my uh, Chinese niece for about fifteen twenty minutes, uh, and then uh, you know do you know go back to YouTube and then uh, and so on, <laughs> and then periodically. Periodically, I have to leave the lair and go meet with um, Chinese. A chemical body. A chemical body. Right. Right. So I have a driver who picks me up and takes me to wherever I'm supposed to go. And then I go there and I hang out with these people and talk to them for a while. And then I come back. Yeah, you're the zoo animal, the freak, the Westerner, the tall Westerner that everybody marvels at. Well, not only that, but, you know, they recently did a census here in Beijing. And uh, so there's 20 million people in Beijing, and there's 100,000 foreigners in a city of 20 million. And, and, and out of those 100,000 foreigners, I must be the biggest one uh, around. So, You're uh, six five. Anyway, what are this, you, Buzz? You're 6'5"? Well, I'm two meters, which I think is slightly over 6'5", something like that. Right, right. So, but Carol's know. making a good observation. So, so far, other than the park, you're not experiencing, you're, you're not in the chemical body of China. But I've looked at some of your footage, you know, you go on the rail. It's interesting what you show around in the environment. You've got a lot of YouTubes there. But I well, guess, uh, Karen, you, you want him to report his, his chemical body life? You know, that, that puny well, that's little typ- chemical? That's my, that's, my, that's my typical day. But see, I also have other experiences during this time. That are that are more sporadic, where I'm meeting with Chinese people, like my neighbors. You know, like I have a an 85 year old guy that lives next door, and um, he and his wife, and uh, we see each other all the time. He he goes out for a walk at 11:30, and at uh, you know 4:30 or something like that. So I run into him periodically, and we do a little phatic thing with each other. I don't speak Chinese. He doesn't speak English, but we talk to each other. He says something like, hey, you know, how you doing today? And I'm like, oh, I'm okay. You know, we do. He does it in Chinese. I do it in English. And, and, you know, and we, we've been doing that for a long time. 
And then uh, because I'm the only white guy in the neighborhood, you know, I run into a lot of if I sit, I have a little park bench sit outside, so I go sit outside, and the neighbors come by, you know, and they say something to me usually in Chinese, and I say something to them in English and stuff like that. So <laughs> nobody I, nobody cares. See, they're not matching. They're making. They don't care that it's the it's the word as thing, the word as massage, because they don't care whether the semantic meaning is imparted. Right. They, they, all they need to do is say, say hi to the freaky white guy because, you know, they never <laughs> see him, you know, like, so they just like are amazed. Oh, my God, there's one of them. I knew that these, I heard these people existed and look, there's one of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> say something to him. So, uh, that, and yeah, they'll the probably say, they'll probably say, hey, buddy, they'll probably say something, look at that fucking idiot, what the dumbest look at those fucking Americans, they're so dumb looking, hey, buddy, yeah, you yeah, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who knows, you know, but they're all very yeah. friendly and smiley and stuff like that, and, uh, you know, no hostility, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, so anyway, and then I also have Chinese friends who speak English, and so, you know, I'll, uh, periodically, I go out to dinner, I go uh, visit the, you know, Juanita's family, uh, uh, on the weekends, you know, I don't go as frequently as her. In China, you have to go visit your parents once a week. But since I'm a white guy and I'm a <laughs> barbarian, I don't have to go that frequently. I can <laughs> stay home and, you know. And they definitely have a superiority complex. We are definitely inferior compared to them, right? Uh, they don't uh, make that pronouncement. Uh, you know, they, they don't, they're very good about not being that way, they, but they, I'm sure that they think that way. Yeah. I mean, you have to understand that this is a 5,000-year-old culture that has been living amongst itself quite successfully for 5,000 years, you know, and so anybody who's like, you know, from these, you know, like the Germans were still living in the woods, for God's sakes, you know, <laughs> uh, 1,500 years ago. You know, and these people had already been civilized for several thousand years at that time. So, uh, you know, their, their, their whole sensibility is very different from ours. They, so they, they probably do feel superior, but they don't go out of their way to be condescending. They, they don't do that. Right. So Riff Router, Writer Router, do you have – wait, Carolyn, you want something, something Carolyn? That article that you, you read the other day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did bring it up. You know, okay, we'll get back to that. The um, Riff Router, you got anything to say? Yeah, we're actually uh, I'm doing a studio visit in Brooklyn with um, an artist, and we're listening to you guys, and she's pretty thrilled about it. Well, do you have any statements or comments to make to Buzz? I don't have any. I, 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 we're, we're listening to Buzz tangentially, so I, I don't have anything to comment right now. But I do love okay. Buzz's videos. They're awesome. <laughs> you like them? You like his videos? Well, what do you like about them? Um, because I think visually they're extraordinarily interesting. I, you know, as someone who, you know, what I do know about video art in a sense, I think I kind of be definitely, uh, I'm a little bit of a student of Buzz's work when it comes to video. Wow. So you, you do have nothing to ask him, but you want to just hear eavesdrop on him. Yeah, I've been eavesdropping on him. But the same, I'm, I'm, (laughs) so Yeah. Okay, there you go, well, Buzz. It's a non, I, nonverbal medium. You get a well, nonverbal response. 
guys like a really well, that's okay. Buzz. You know, and I, I've used uh, Riff Rider uh, has done a few uh, things with you, and I've used his voice. His, uh, you, his voice doesn't sound the same to me as it does when I'm listening to it on the uh, audio portion, but his voice is very uh, conducive to um, the kind of effect I'm looking for. Uh, I've done a couple of videos with his voice and your voice interacting. That's so, right. Now there was, you see, maybe it's because you know. Like an Eskimo, I can see 50 kinds of snow. I definitely know when Buzz is jiving, jabbing at me or James or Chad or anybody. He, Buzz brings his personal preference in there occasionally. And if I recall, the, the Riff, Router, Riff Rider one, you made Buzz. You made fun of Riff Rider's response uh, of him being the panic social activist. Did I pick that up right? Well, I, sometimes you have to understand that a lot of this shit comes out synchronistically. Like, I don't intentionally go to it with any kind of point of view. But afterwards, it's like the video, like going back to the story about how I did the video where I dragged Eli's video in with that woman in the bikini yeah. and the woman in the bikini freaked out. She saw something in that that was there that I didn't see or didn't even think about putting there. Uh, so... Uh, I noticed that there's a lot of these kind of synchronicities that come out that that sound like I'm intentionally trying to either mock or make a comment about something. Well, I'd be surprised. I do, but Buzz, I would be surprised. There's several YouTubes you've done with me and James where James is going, mm, interesting, or mm, I don't get that. And you repeat it, repeat it, repeat it as if you're making fun of James's, uh, James Martinez's uh, state of mind there or whatever stupid thing he's saying. Are you telling? Are no, no. you trying it, to tell me that that's accidental? No, the, the repeating of James's stuff is not accidental, but it's also not making fun of him. It's really just because the sounds he's making are particularly interesting. Yeah, the you know, sound. Like, You're uh, into not the semantic meaning, but more the texture of it. The sound and, and partly the meaning, but it's the, his way he just expresses himself that is uh, is appropriate for what I think is uh, the right space. Like there was this one clip where we had where he, you guys get disconnected and you have this yeah. interchange, you know, like, uh, are you yeah. reading slowly on purpose? No. I, well, that just struck me as funny, you know, and I, yeah. I use yeah. that clip periodically in different things. It's not meant to make fun of James or, or you. It's just. I think the only guy you want to make fun of is Ion. Alien, it's been a pleasure and I'm honored to be a part of this conversation. And uh, we've transgressed <laughs> uh, multiple times. We've uh, listened to some exceptional heresies. We've had some exceptional insights. We've had a full uh, a lounge, a menagerie, a, uh, a big salad, as it were. And um, my thanks go out particularly to uh, Buzz Coaston for um, taking the steps to come and be this guest of honor. Um, I think we've actually learned a lot, and I hope you can continue to, to be involved. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I like my involvement to be on the listening and editing end, but... Uh...